I want to see a world that's optimized for freedom and not for safety. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a massive interview. I've got Alex Svetsky back on the show where he outlines his case for an anarchist society to me. And I give him a little bit of pushback. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And listen, make sure you check them out. If I didn't have these sponsors, I could not do this podcast. So first up today, we're going to talk about Casa, the absolute best in Bitcoin security. And I tweeted about them last week and had a bunch of you DM me and ask me questions about them. And the reason I did that is with this bull market looking like it's happening and we're over, what, it's like 15k now. I think a lot of people are starting to see their Bitcoin position rise and starting to think about their security. Now, I had this uh, I had this question about, it's about, it's come up to six months ago now. So I reached out to Casa. I was like, let's get this done. Let me write you a check. Let me get on the Casa train. So they set me up. And actually, it's look, it's been so much peace of mind. I'm the kind of person who could do something really dumb and lose my Bitcoin. So having Casa set up protects me from those mistakes. But also, other things, it protects me from hackers, in-person attacks, the failure of a device, and so many other things. Now, look, they have products for every type of Bitcoiner. Whether you are a small holder, they have a product called Casa Gold, which is $10 a month. But they also have their Platinum product, which I use. And they also have Casa Diamond, which is their full service offering. Now, I recommend you go and check them out. You can DM me on Twitter if you've got any questions. But if you do want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, let's talk about sportsbet.io. And look, massive news. Did you see it? Did you see that Bitcoin was at the top of the Premier League for part of this weekend? Yes, after Southampton's victory, they shot to the top of the Premier League and they have a Bitcoin logo on the front of their shirt because Sportsbet.io put a Bitcoin logo on the front of their shirt. Sportsbet.io put Bitcoin at the top of the Premier League. (laughs) Super cool. Anyway, listen, we've also had the return of the Champions League and the Europa League and Sportsbet.io is offering a number of ways for you to win on these competitions they offer missions whereby if you hit a streak during the competition you can win up to one btc in cash prizes just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to opt in and view the terms of the promotion if you want to find out more sportsbet.io is s-p-o-r-t-s-b-e-t.io okay so on to the show today and as i said i am joined by alex fetsky and this conversation is a beast i mean we went on for like three hours and we probably could have gone on for another couple of hours we deep dived into libertarianism and the transition from a democratic society to an anarchist society. Now, I speak to Alex quite regularly, and this is a show that we've been planning for quite some time. We've been discussing ideas probably for a couple of months now, and as any of you who regularly listen to the show know, I've covered libertarianism quite a lot, but I always find myself coming back to the same points. Is it possible to move to a society like this? Theoretically, I'm all in, but realistically, can it happen, and what are the implications? You know, how will this actually work? Uh, simple things like how does policing work and I've you know I've read everything about you know private police forces but I just you know I'm not 100% convinced yet also certain things with regards to regulations I'm quite close to what happened with DuPont Um, if you haven't seen the film Dark Waters definitely go and check that out I just think that is the kind of thing that falls between the cracks and ultimately would we just end up reorganising into a new form of government? But Alex has written some great work on the topic, so he came on for us to go through this. Now, 
In this interview, I argue from the side of democracy, and it's not that I disagree with libertarians or Alex. I, I, in fact, can definitely get on board with a number of the arguments he puts forward, but I'm just trying to fully understand how we get there and if it's even possible. As I said, it's a monster of a show. It's nearly three hours long, but it's well worth going through. It's without doubt one of my favourite shows I've made this year. The long ones usually are, just because they're natural. You know, if you're going on for three hours, you must be enjoying the conversation. Anyway, if you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Outside of that, go and check out Defiance. I've moved the show release schedule back to a Thursday. Having it on a Monday means we're always working over the weekends, which isn't great. So episode two of Chaos is out on Thursday. If you haven't checked out episode one, do. That's it, defiance.news. Have a great week, and I'll see you all soon. What's up, brother? How are you? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? Yeah, man. Good to talk to you. So we've uh, we've been planning this show for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also both of us have got a, a habit of swearing quite a bit. I actually did. I send you it after that last interview. I did. Somebody wrote to me, and yeah, complained we, about yeah. your, yours and my swearing. A bunch of people wrote to me as well, saying love the interview, but I couldn't listen to all the swearing. So let's. Um, I, I vow to to do better. It's it's not it's not for those people. I think for me, I've also been trying to manage my swearing a little bit just 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 for my own purposes because when i was younger i had a really foul mouth and then i went through a period of um i completely cleaned up my swearing so believe it or not a svetsky existed that didn't swear for a whole year um, wow. a whole year yeah a whole year like i literally i cleaned it up completely and um and then then it came back it's uh it's like uh it's like corona mate it keeps coming keeps coming <laughs> <laughs> well listen look we'll, we'll do our best both of us not to swear if the old one, if the old one slips in, we're sorry. And uh, if that annoys you, well, go fuck yourself. Okay, so listen, look, uh, you've got something on your mind. Come on, you've been like pushing me. You've been saying you want to make a show. We're going to talk about state stuff. I'm going to outline my position first, and then then we're going to dive into it. And this is one where, by like, I'm not here with notes. I normally have notes and questions. I'm here just to like shoot it with you. Mm-hmm. But look, my position, my very very confused position is, I. I'm a believer and supporter of democracy because like the old uh, Churchill statement, which was actually came from somebody else, but you know, it's terrible, but everything else is much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't though vote in the last election, which makes me kind of a hypocrite, but just cause I felt like neither was worth voting for. And I think uh, choosing not to vote is a choice within democracy. Um, and you have your reason um, but at the same time, obviously, being in the Bitcoin world, I get a lot exposed to a lot of kind of libertarian and kind of anarchist ideas, which on paper, I absolutely fundamentally 100% agree with. But I've always said I struggle to see how it actually plays out. Um, that said, at the moment, I like I just did this interview with Raoul Power and halfway through it, like my brain started to work and I was thinking, well, perhaps, perhaps we're evolving to the point to get rid of the state and that's like a it's going to be like a natural conclusion rather than some kind of political goal but look it's a very confused position i have i sit in between it all um and i I think in some ways also because like it it supports the show right it helps me to do the interviews but like that is my position from the start and that's where where i will be during this interview cool and and yeah on on my side i mean you know anyone who has followed me knows you know my position on the state and 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 that's you know a lot of people think i started off libertarian and you know if you you look at some of my 
you know, early talks back in the day, like I, I you know, was a strong believer that, oh, you know, that the state needs to exist. I even believed that taxation needed to exist. Um, but the more and more I've um, gone down the rabbit hole, you know, starting from a particular set of values and, and what I, you know, what we'll describe as a priori truths, and then that's some of the things I want to go through today, is you, you, can, uh, you can logically deduce things that make sense and, and bring you to a point of, hey, this is actually how things should work or this is actually how things um, should function. And, and my argument's kind of going to be that, um, you know, the, this idea of democracy, um, quote unquote, which, you know, in, in my mind is, um, is largely a farce, is kind of part of the evolutionary process to something else mm-hmm. in, in the same way as the, um, you know, the, the, you know, empires, you know, came from these large scale, you know, slave kind of tyrannies. And then, you know, empires then yielded the church, the church yielded the nation state. Now the nation state is likely going to yield some, you know, sort of technocracy, um, technocratic, you know, uh, big brother kind of state, but each thing yields something else. And along the way, there's these, um, these almost bastions of, um, of objective truth, which is sort of where, the libertarian ideals sit that allow you know some sort of semblance of freedom and progress that basically carries the rest of the junk along the way and what i think we've done is we've confused um the reason for our progress you know with democracy as opposed to um scientific and technological evolution particularly over the last couple hundred years and what, what i'm going to kind of argue is that if we extend um the time frame a little bit um we'll see that, you know, libertarianism isn't a, um, it, it's more aligned with how natural law functions and it's, it's where it's where gravity is going to pull us anyway. And we're going to, you know, p- progression happens despite um, or in spite of things like the state and centralized control, et cetera. But those things have sort of come along for the ride because uh, true raw, uh, economic power is um is far more powerful. So so anyway, that that like I'd love to you know get us you know to set a frame to begin with and you know find a common ground because if we've got like some some truths, some values, some principles that we can both come back to, mm-hmm. um, you know during the conversation, um, we can actually have a you know we can have a fair and honest um you know scrutinization of our opinions. You know so so. You know, we can agree or disagree whether or not like a plane should exist, right? But we, you know, we can't argue about gravity, you know, like, yep. or, you know, we can, with poverty, you know, how we might fight poverty, you know, might differ, but we can both probably agree that it's a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think if we can find some common grounds, um, you know, I think we'll actually learn something out of this instead of just, um, you know, you talking Chinese and me talking, you know, Arabic and us not understanding each other. I, I, th- I think we'll find a lot of common ground. Like you know, we talk, we talk offline. You know, we've had a few couple of phone calls and um, you know, talk over Telegram. And and I don't, th- I think we have a lot of common ground actually. Um, I think there's a lot we agree on. I think it's the, I think you've done a lot more research looking into how how we kind of how we progress with this, like the evolutionary process. Whereas I'm more, I'm a bit more like in the now, a bit of a doubter saying, yeah, but that's not going to work because like humans are selfish or blah, 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 whatever reason. But like, I agree. So if you kick us off, we, you, you find us the common ground and we'll go from there. 
All right. Well, have you heard of the the notion of um of an a priori um, truth or an a priori fact? Do, 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 have you sort of come across that? Nope. Okay. Um, a priori basically means um, it, it's a fact that's not subject to verification or falsification on the grounds of observations or observed facts, and and there's no uh, contradiction that can exist. So it's like if you sort of you know, we we can discover that water boils at 100 degrees but we we had to discover that through like testing and we look back on empirical evidence and every single time you know we test it we find that you know water boils at 100 degrees so you know we found a fact but that's not a priori whereas um something like math for example um you know math was always uh two plus two so so it you know that that's a fact that is uh, always true. It's indisputable, um, and a, like we didn't have to observe it in order to um, discover it. It existed before observation. So, a couple other examples, just so we can sort of get our heads around this, is like humans act like that is uh, a priori truth because even in denying, you know, that humans act, you just performed an act. Um, or all bachelors are unmarried, um, or no two objects can occupy. The same place or no two straight lines can enclose a space um you know production must precede consumption um th these are all like truths that don't require um empirical evidence to prove they are you know that they're, they're fundamentally true and, and this is sort of like the basis of you know that there was a philosopher called emmanuel kant kant um who sort of you know really pushed this this concept forward and, and a lot of Austrian libertarian thought kind of spawns from here but but a lot of people I never hear a lot of people talk about this um, you know they, they, they talk about their opinion more so than starting from this um, this foundation of truth and and I think you know if, if we start here you know we can always kind of you know when we branch out to our opinions we can kind of use some logical deduction and come back to all right is that consistent? with this truth, you know, or is it, you know, a load of crap? And, okay. and, and I think, you know, a, a couple that I'd like us to establish like common ground with is, you know, an idea of, I've, I've got this little list here of like 10 deductive um, truths that we can explore. But like where I kind of want to get to is us agreeing, for example, that, um, you know, the, the freedom to think something that we both agree on um, or the freedom to speak is something that we both agree on or that all individuals are unique and different um, and that we all subjectively value things differently. Like if we can all, like if you and I can sort of agree on those small elements, I think we can really, you know, make some progress on this. So. No, but that's fair. That, that, that's, you know, that, that's a fair, fair starting point. Um, um, I did want to go back though. And just on one point you said, Production must happen before consumption, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is, I guess, what you're trying to allude to there is that uh, the avoidance of uh, socialism. Well, that's Certainly, what and, and specific aspects, you know, for example, universal, you, you would debunk, sorry, you'd dunk on uh, universal basic income because there's no production. Well, there is production before consumption, but somebody else is pr producing for you to have that consumption. Well, with. I think my um, my dunking on UBI is probably going to go back to uh, another one, which is more around um, who has the right to distribute wealth, um, and is it 
is it the right of the individual who produced the wealth um, or is it the right of some other person? Um, and, and that's we're going to see whether that uh, idea is um, whether it's consistent with if we take the truth that, you know, you are your own property um, and your work is an extension of your own property. Like, do you own that? And do we believe in this idea of private property or, you know, are we going to be inconsistent in our beliefs and assume that somebody else has the right to distribute what you've produced to someone else? So that, that would be more my dunking on UBI as opposed to this. But I think production preceding consumption, I, I just, you know, fundamentally believe is a, um, is a like, you, you can't consume that which hasn't doesn't exist yet, right? So, like, something has to be produced before you can consume it. So as a result, um, you know, if, if we look at just basic, you know, causality cause and effect like production always has to precede consumption like something has to be created before it's consumed like um and and i think you know that that'll sort of touch on some other things but are we on the same page there or yeah yeah no i agree i i i fundamentally agree cool so so let's i'll, I'll take you through th this little 11 point um thing that i have here and just pull me up if at any point you're like oh no i don't agree with that or that doesn't make sense so um, th this is this is very. Um, I think I, you know, draw drew a lot of this out of um, Austrian economics. But you know, we look at you know, starting with the first a priori truth, which is man, like humans, act. Like you know, even if we don't act, that's an act, right? So so th there we, there's no escaping action. So if we start there, then we can make the logical deduction and you know maintain consistency of truth, which is actions have a purpose or an end um, because you know that's that, that there is always somewhere that the action is taking us now then we go you know we can make the deduction that evolutionarily speaking the intent of that end is to improve one's circumstances now you know one could say that oh yeah well people always perform stupid actions that are irrational and that don't improve their circumstances the intent, though, is for some sort of um, pleasure pain. So, like, we, we, we're wired biologically to, um, to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And even though sometimes on the surface it might look like we're masochistic or something like that, we, we, we draw pleasure um, from these actions. So, so at the end of the day, the, the, the end um, is, is always in the pursuit of the improvement of one's um, circumstances or in the in the pursuit of pleasure in some way, shape, or form. It just may not eventuate that way. So that's sort of our third one. Then we can move on to um, in order to act, in order to pursue an end, you know, one must have a means. Um, and then we can move on to means are scarce because we live in a physical world. You know, we don't have unlimited uh, resources. Um, we can then say, you know, every effect has a cause, you know, this is kind of ties back to production preceding consumption, you know, because, hey, welcome to reality. Um, then we can, you know, move on to all action takes place under uncertainty. You know, we, we do not and cannot know what the future holds um, because that contradicts the causal nature of reality. You know, like you, you would not take action or you couldn't take action if, you know, the truth was already predetermined. So, so you know, we're, we're moving in a plane of uncertainty. Um, you know, we can also say action takes place in the dimension of time. Um, time is also uh, scarce and it moves directionally forward. You know, we haven't yet figured out how to move back in time and you know, we, I don't functionally think that's you know, possible. Um, so, you know, we, we can then, we can combine all of these to then say, you know, 
this means that all action takes place within the constraints of scarcity and uncertainty. Like that's where all action takes place with the intent of, you know, moving in some sort of direction that is for, you know, pleasure improvement. Um, and then, you know, th this is sort of where I'll tie it off here so we don't get too bogged down in the weeds. But this is where, you know, this idea of time preference that a lot of people throw around these days, this is where time preference emerges. It's because we're moving forward um, within the constraints of, you know, scarcity and uncertainty, what it means is that we value having something um, today or, or now more than we value having something later because the the uncertainty of having something scarce later um, lowers its value uh, later. So, so we always have a positive time preference, but what we found throughout society is that the lower that time preference, the the more the, the better we allocate resources today um, versus spending all of our resources today. And therein lies the foundation upon which um, you know effectively economics emerges and civilization actually emerges from there. So so that's sort of I think that's a really important um, ground. And, and as we're discussing different points, you know, whether we're going to talk UBI or socialism or democracy, all this sort of stuff, I just want to come back to and say, all right, does this concept or this idea or this um, way of thinking or this way of living, does it contradict these fucking truths? Because if it contradicts that, then we know that that's probably not what we should be doing and we should be sort of trying to come back to what is, um, you know, natural and true. So... Was there anything from all of that that I, you know, that you would fundamentally disagree with or that you think is madness? No, no, um, no. I think we have to see how it plays out in terms of the explanation. And then if you deduce things, then perhaps I will challenge it. But no, that, that seems a fair, very fair starting point. Okay, cool. So I guess um, I'll throw maybe one thing in there just, just so people can um, Well, actually, let me, let me do a couple, of, a couple of questions first. Like, firstly, I've asked this before on the podcast, and I know I should know the answer, but what is the, what is the difference between libertarianism and anarchism? There's very, diff very little difference, man. Yeah. I mean, anarchy is kind of like the, the natural state of things, basically. So if you look at all nature, there's no, like, ruler that is you know telling all the animals and all the plants and everything what to do so like anarchy is like all right the nature does its thing you know it, it it looks chaotic but it's beautiful and that's where all the diversity comes from so so there's no you know i mean some people might argue that there's you know there's a god and there's a grand you know organizer of things but like at the end of the day like you know you can sort of align the notion of god with the notion of nature which is this this beautiful complexity which is anarchic in nature now Libertarianism kind of tries to take uh, anarchy and apply it to how human beings can behave as close to uh, natural order or natural law as possible. Um, and, and that's why they're so, like, they're so similar, whereas pe people's view of anarchy is just chaos and a bunch of people stabbing and shooting each other um, mm -hmm. because apparently, you know, that's apparently what humans should do when they're left to their own devices, which is, which is a preposterous claim, right? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, you know, it's usually people lose their minds and push back and punch, stab, and kill people if um they're being if they in some way feel threatened or you know have no choices or something like that, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. or, or or if or if we've you know completely avoided 
Um, I mean, I mean, even quote unquote savages, like you know, you know, we go back to the early times, just didn't randomly go around just killing everybody. Like you know, people, um, you know, we we sort of grew out of the savannah and got to here somehow, and that somehow was really anarchic in nature, and we didn't, you know, kill each other. <laughs> you know, otherwise we wouldn't be here. So, anarchy is sort of the natural state of things. I would, I would argue. Okay. All right. Cool. So, okay, and then the next thing is goal-wise, I think, so anyone listening is understanding, what is it we're going to be, or let's say from your point of view, what is it the case you're going to be arguing for? Okay. Uh, I want to set some, like, um, foundations for, like, you know, where where good values and morality sit. So, like, for me, I want to define... What is negative and what is, what is positive, um, as you know, basic you know, objective morals and values, and then I want to apply those to systems of um, you know, current organization, whether that is uh, democratic, whether that is anarchic, you know, all that sort of stuff, and you know, hopefully come to the end of the conversation to say, all right, A does not sound like a good thing, and B sounds better, or C is you know, whatever, and kind of see if we can get to a point where people redefine in their minds um, what anarchy is, what libertarianism is, and what, you know, again, it's it's not, I'm not preaching some utopian bullshit. Um, what, what I'm preaching is the defense of what is likely messier but more free as opposed to what is, you know, sanitized, sterilized, and, you know, supposedly for your safety, which is this idea of um, democracy or the state, so so that's kind of where I want to where I want to land. Okay, but but ultimately, what do you want to see? Like, what what's what's your end game here? Uh, I've, I I want to see the ability for uh, f- like I want to see a world that's optimized for freedom and not for safety. Um, okay. So the individual, not for the group. And I think when we build strong individuals where we identify the positive as the freedom of an individual to pursue their ends with their own means, you know, the voluntary participation in the pursuit of those means, you know, the freedom to think and speak one's mind, the freedom right to protect yourself. Like, I think if if we can establish a world that looks more like that, which is much more local in nature, which is um, voluntary in nature, which is um, not... Uh, where, where personal agency and, and, you know, more importantly, personal responsibility is what decisions are hinged on, not somebody else's decree um, or what I call fiat authority as the way things should be run. Because I think humans get weaker, dumber, and what happens is the individual dissolves into this homogenous sludge of a collective, which I think is unfortunately the the trajectory you know we've been moving in for for quite a while now so it's kind of my end goal here and you have a good lens for this being from australia with the kind of dystopian nightmare that's that's happened there although i do want to talk about like i will talk about uh we'll get onto coronavirus at some point but but um i i wasn't too aware up until about a year ago what was really happening in australia i can't remember the exact story i've read but i read something to do with the freedom of the press and didn't all the papers put out like a black a black front cover at some point or a blank front cover to protest against 
the kind of free speech rights that have been impeded there. You've also got um you've got quite a quite a police state growing there as well. It, it, you know, Australia Australia always had a picture in my my mind growing up as like this really kind of like happy beach, fun, healthy, laid back kind of like place, but but it's going through its own kind of like dystopian nightmare. And I think on, on some measures it's even worse than the UK. Well, it is, and this is one of the problems with um, with having no memory of, um, you know, a lot of people always talk about, and this is one of those utopian dreams that a lot of the statists and bureaucrats always, you know, talk about is, um, oh, we want to, you know, you know, peace on earth, and you know, we want to remove all conflict and all that sort of stuff, and and you know, the 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 beauty of conflict and tension and all that sort of stuff, it's like what it does is or even the, the existence of hardship or the existence of differences, uh, what um, kind of, let, let's relate it to a gym. You go to a gym, you know, you, you, you torture your muscles, you put yourself through some pain so that you can grow, um, you know. And, and in, in removing pain and creating all these cushions and, you know, safety nets, which is effectively what Australia's been, Australia's been one big nanny state that's been out of the way of all conflict, basically, since it started, like it's never, it's never really like. I mean, we we sit there and say, oh yeah, we're involved in World War One and Two. It's like we sent a couple soldiers over to Turkey. They got killed, and you know, no one gave a fuck. So it's like we've sort of been out of the way of of danger and conflict and all of that. So what's happened is no one's got any um, sense of you know how slippery the slope can get when society optimizes for safety and not for freedom, and. You know, I, I would argue that Australia has just been, you know, traditionally the lucky country because it's been a beneficiary, you know, of all this capital and growth that's happened, you know, in China and America and, you know, all around the world. And, you know, a lot of money's come into Australia and we've just been so lucky there because there's all this money coming in and we've had resources that we've been able to dig out. And because America, sorry, Australia was built on at least, you know, some functional Western values um, that, you know, emerged out of, the Enlightenment and England and all of that, you know, so, so it had some good systems and processes that allowed it to, you know, enrich itself. Um, and then, you know, like I said, it got a bunch of steroids from the rise of China and all of that. So, so it's been really sheltered and lucky. The problem is in, in, the, in this bid to optimize for some utopian, you know, society where safety and, you know, all this bullshit is, you know, fed to people, um, it's inadvertently turning itself into a big brother state because no one thinks deep and they haven't gone through the problems of what utopianism actually looks like. Like if you want to know what a utopia looks like, it's North Korea because over there, there is no crime. (laughs) There's nothing wrong internally, but guess what? (laughs) It's North Korea. So that's, that's the problem that these people... I was reading an article about the MIT like lab that they recently um that they created some software which they were trying to use over the phone to basically measure some some sort of AI voice recognition software to measure if um if people have Alzheimer's and now they're applying it to um measure the frequency of coughing and the sound of the cough so they can detect apparently whether you have corona and it's like these idiots are stupid enough to think that, you know, through their tech, they're helping people, but they're literally building their own, um, they're building their own prison. Um, it, it's like, th- there's a, there's a saying I love from Tony Robbins is, you know, the, the, um, 
the wall that protects you becomes the wall that imprisons you. And, and this is the problem with these utopian ideals that when you don't tie them back to some of those, you know, a priori truths that we sort of discussed earlier is you end up, you end up building your own dystopia in the pursuit of a utopia. And that, that's effectively what Australia is, is that, and, and that's why it's in danger of becoming a complete police state. And we don't even have to apply the conspiracy theory lens to it. It's just pure stupidity. It's because nobody is questioning what these um, quote-unquote utopian ideals can actually potentially lead to. Now, if you sprinkle in a little bit of conspiracy, um, you know, it, it's not hard to see how it's heading down that path. All right. Cool. All right. So where do we start with this? Can we can we agree on a couple of these? Um, uh hypocrisy is bad like when, when some people say one thing but do another whether whether it's um by accident or whether it's the result of their actions um is contrary to what they said you know can we agree that hypocrisy is a bad thing we want to avoid hypocrisy. um n- not directly so what i would say with hypocrisy is look i think everyone is hypocritical sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think if you recognize it um so for example like i'm, I'm a hypocrite with my children right i tell them not to do things that i do and I don't regret doing them. <laughs> yeah, I don't want my children to do them. Okay, um, mm-hmm. so that happens, and and I recognise that. That's part of like raising children. But also sometimes, like sometimes you f- you find yourself being hip- hypocritical without re- realising, and sometimes that puts you in check. So I don't think hypocrisy itself is bad because sometimes it can lead to a good outcome. It can lead to a change of opinion to a, to something which is which is has a better outcome. Um, I think I think. Uh, deceitful hypocrisy is a bad thing do you understand what i mean by that 100 percent. so the, so that's um intentional hypocrisy yeah 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 okay so so but i think and correct me if i'm wrong here but what i think you're describing is not that hypocrisy is a good thing it's that hypocrisy is always going to happen but the the what, what it is is a is a um we, the the path is to consistency, not to hypocrisy. So, in other words, when we are coming, you know, when when we're moving towards enlightenment or towards realization or towards thinking, we're actually moving away from hypocrisy. If we look at it as a spectrum, from consistency on one side and hypocrisy on the other, um, the path to realization or the path to learning or the path to truth and honesty is actually away from hypocrisy towards consistency. Now, if you actively or intentionally stay on the side of the spectrum of hypocrisy knowing that you're you know pushing contradictions then that's bad that's you know quote unquote evil but like innocent hypocrisy is always going to exist but what we should strive for is consistency can can we agree there yeah we can okay power and control over another is um is bad like you know it, it's we can define that as slavery or you know it's the antithesis of self-ownership can we okay can we... well let me push some things back on you there okay so what about parenting okay d- describe your view of parenting um in, in the context of power and control over another well so i i have the power of my children to tell them what to do what time to go to bed you know, what they can and can't watch on tv you know certain things they can do i can i i, I control probably whether it's passively or not, but I I probably control some of their opinions. You know, one of the discussions I was having with my brother this morning with regard to like political division and where um 
you know, where people's political persuasion comes from, I think there is a, a natural leaning for you to have a similar political uh, leaning as, as the household you wake up in because of the values you're taught. Mm-hmm. Can we can we try and make a distinction between control and influence? Do you think there's a difference between those two? What, what, what are you saying in terms of con- you, you define control for me? Control is, I guess, effectively using force to to or, or the threat of violence to make somebody do something against their own volition. I mean, people do that as, as parents, you know, like get your homework done or you can't or you're grounded. You got to stay in your room. I mean, it happens, right? There's certain amounts of power and control that happen with parenting. Yep, agreed. Okay, so so all right. So then let's look at let's let's dig into the control in the parenting sense because I think this one's really important. Is if you disappeared tomorrow, would that be a positive or a negative for your children? Uh, negative. Why? Because they they love their father and they want their father in their life. Mm-hmm. And what else? Are you, is you, are you as a father a provider in some sense? Provider, provider, guidance, and various other things. Shelter, this, that. Yeah, yeah. okay. So I would argue that the parenting situation is a little bit different. It's because, um, you know, as a parent, um, you sort of brought a life into the world and you take on the responsibility then to help nurture um, that person. And, you know, you, you've grown up with, um, you know, you've, got experience behind you which you know the child doesn't you know in in return for you know the the shelter and the the teaching and the guidance and the you know and the food and all that sort of stuff that you provide um you know the 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 child actually has an incentive uh to to listen um because you've earned some authority versus Let's let's look at parenting in two ways. So, do you think it's better that you are parenting your child, or, for example, that some uh, state authority comes in and takes your child um, because they believe they know better um, and they make your child do, you know, whatever they think is right for the child? Hmm. See, that's a very interesting point because there are certainly scenarios where, with the state, a child is removed from an abusive home, whether that's violent abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, um, and and taken out of a dangerous and abusive environment, mm-hmm. that that exists. Now, that- do I do I believe I want it for me and my children? No, because I'm a good father and I look after them. But do I believe there are degenerate parents out there treating their children badly? Yes, I do. Exactly. Now, we'll we'll, we'll ad- I, I'd love to address that um, separately because I, I would argue that the the incentive to be a degenerate parent has actually increased thanks to the state because what we've done is um, traditionally uh, if you were a degenerate parent um, and you didn't have a safety net um, you would have been much less likely to have a child but when we decided to start creating a state social safety net effectively for bad parents then the um, the incentive to to be a dick and be a shit parent and either, you know, end up, you know, just popping a baby out because, you know, the, the, the w- as soon as we started disintegrating the nuclear family, um, we've actually increased the percentage of um, these households with retarded kids. Now, you can't remove complete retardation like that. that so th- th- this is I was having a chat with a, with a girl last night and saying, you know, idiots will always exist. Um, it will never completely eliminate stupidity or dumbness, but if we if we optimize society 
to sort of be structured around the lowest common denominator, well, what you do is you create an incentive for everyone to sort of move in the direction of being part of the lowest common denominator as opposed to optimizing society for being sort of the best in us. So I, I agree with you, there is dick parents that, you know, shouldn't have kids in the first place, you know, and, and in some senses, you know, maybe that kid will have a slightly better opportunity with the state. But I, I'm talking about in general, as a parent, you know, you have a baby and most parents, like 99% of parents, you know, have their children's best interest at heart, right? Like they're not, their goal is not to be a, a dictator so that they can, you know, have slave labor um, or child labor, right? Yeah, I, I, like the, there is nuance to this. But yes, I believe the majority do. Um, but I also believe there are certain, I do believe there are a certain percentage of degenerate parents where whether people agree with us or not, I'm thankful that there are authorities that go in and remove that child from that environment. Now, yes, there'll be arguments and consequences of having that because then you have the state and the state has power control, but at the same time, I'm glad it happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I can relate to that one pretty strongly. My dad was quite a degenerate, really violent, you know, beat the shit out of, um, you know, me, my brother, my sister, my my mom, and all this sort of stuff. So, so my 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 salvation in some senses was actually my uncle. So he he was more a father figure for me. And you know, so so we you know, thank Christ we didn't have any state intervention. It was more my uncle who intervened, and you know, the whole family broke up, and I sort of ended up moving in with my uncle and my grandmother. But I actually think that that function used to be it would not think, but in reality, that function used to be uh, taken up by the community or the or the immediate family as opposed to some you know faceless nameless state and you know so so again there, there was always a solution for the retarded parent um, and it was more a local solution as opposed to this completely socialized solution and when it became faceless nameless and socialized what it did was it increased the incentive for more uh, quote unquote, potentially bad parents to have babies because the consequence of being a bad parent actually was lowered, um, as opposed to as opposed to you know being potentially ostracized from the community and things like that. So, so so I actually think the state has caused more bad parenting than um, yeah. See, I can't, I can't, I don't know if you can objectively prove that for a couple of reasons. Um, I would say you could probably. I always remember. Listen, when I went out to. Um, uh, Thailand a couple of years ago I took my kids to this elephant sanctuary mm -hmm. where they used to rescue elephants which had been used as um, like for labor or as like uh, like circus entertainment but like street entertainment and even one that had had um, like a, this small kind of like child elephant I don't want to say baby elephant had like uh, its foot damaged by standing on a lat I think it was a landmine or maybe its foot was in a trap but it was badly damaged and it's a place where you can't ride elephants. You can go along for the day and you pay. And, and with that, they used to house them and, and look after them and raise them. And they showed us uh, a family of elephants. And they explained how the, the community of elephants raises the child. So whilst it has its mother and its father, actually, it's the whole community of elephants that work together to raise, raise the elephant. And I just thought, you know, what a lovely thing that was. And I can imagine if you go back... You know, centuries and centuries. You know, before we started creating state infrastructure, and that that you know, back when humans were 
much simpler. I imagine we didn't have certain types of abuses that we have now. Now, you know, I, I can't prove it, but I'm assuming sexual abuse was a very different thing. And I assume you have these small communities that raise children. Okay, now now we're in a much more advanced society because we have state, we have technology, everything that's happened to, to advanced society, and we've grown into a different type of civilization. Um, I can't objectively say whether or not the state incentivizes people to be bad parents. People just might be bad parents. For example, you, you know... I'm fortunate to live in the UK, and you know, you grew up, grew up in Australia. But you know, we're pretty developed Western Western nations. I don't know if cases of neglect and abuse are worse in in areas of poverty, which have got poor poor states. I honestly don't know. I you know, I, perhaps there's an argument that in a more civilized and developed society, there's less cases of, of abuse because there's more checks and balances in place. I just don't know if that's true, and I don't know if you can objectively prove it. I think you can make the hypothesis, which I think you've done, but I don't know if you can. I don't know if your hypothesis has been proven. Um, the, the, I'm actually just flicking through the um, book that I was reading recently. I'm looking for the notes where some of the statistics of like um, rape, divorce, murder, and all this sort of stuff um, measured on on a per capita basis, not on a total basis, uh, are up. You know, ridiculous amounts since the emergence of um, of the Democratic Republic, and and like what what it I may or may not find it. If if I if I find it, I'll you know give you a link um, so that you can sort of show everyone on the show notes. But um, the, the the what it basically comes down to is all all human action. Remember, comes back to um, time preference and incentives. And when you when you change um, the, the time preference around, um, you know, the way human beings order and manage themselves. And, and you know, th this will tie into why democracy is such a bad thing because it, it um, you know, having a caretaker who's got no skin in the game look after a jurisdiction, um, their time preference actually gets really, 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 really high. They value now and they don't give a shit about tomorrow, so they'll burn through human resources, natural resources and everything just to make themselves look good today and who gives a shit about who comes in tomorrow. But um, the the incentive set up for parenthood, for example, is let, let's assume in a situation where you don't have the state and you don't have a safety net like a social security safety net or something like that to fall back on if, let's say, you know, you marry someone and you decide to have a kid and you know that if, um, you know, you marry an asshole and he leaves, um, and this is one of the big problems in America at the moment is like single single mothers and single parenthood is they get rid of the dad. There's no dad. Um, there's, no, there's no father figure. But it's much more prone to happen because guess who supports the single mother um, is the welfare state. And you create these sort of uh, really skewed fucked up, um, you know, uh, cesspool areas of society where, um, where young people are growing up without any uh, proper guidance, particularly from, from, the, from the male side, but with a complete dependence on the state. So it's become okay to make that mistake, whereas in a, in a situation where a state doesn't exist, you, you create a much larger disincentive 
for two people to get together and just willy-nilly have a kid because they got nothing better to do um, because if one of them leaves, there is no safety net. You don't get a fucking safety net. You don't, you yeah, don't have uh- I understand you know, the argument, but but you know I've I've travelled to a lot of parts of the world. Spent a lot of time in South uh, South America. When I went out to Venezuela, um, yeah, okay. Some may argue, well, Venezuela does have a uh, it's a socialist system, right? So they might argue that 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 is its social safety net, but it do- really doesn't have one. I went into one of the most dangerous and awful slums, right? Um, and I went to specifically an NGO, a charity which helps support. Um, mothers with children and it provides two meals a day one in the morning before the kids go to school and one after school because these people just have no money like they are dirt poor but they still have children and there are still they still uh, have a lot of uh, single mothers who are having so i just i i don't know yes I, i can see the argument that like in the uk we have a welfare state there's an argument for some i think i think in some ways there's more of an argument for people not to work but I don't know if the incentive is there to have children. Well, I actually, just don't know if it exists as much because I think that happens all over the place. But I not, think the incentive really. is, I think the incentive is to have sex and people have children. Not really. No, no. no. The, the more wealthy you are, and this is indisputable, the more wealthy you are, the less um, prone you are to have children. Simple as that. So, so what happens is when you create a welfare state and you create a state of poverty when you create a dependency on the state for you not to do nothing but to to sort of live in a state of poverty what what ends up happening is children that the, the incentive to have children goes through the fucking roof because people a have nothing better to do but b particularly in places like africa south america and everything it's they have a hope that one of the kids might make it and pull the uh, pull the family out of poverty so what they do is they pump babies like crazy so if you want to slow down population, for example, you increase the wealth of the population and you actually slow down the um, the kid producing. That is actually what happens. So what's quite interesting, I've got a chart up actually. So th- there might be some evidence to this because the US has the, the highest ch- children living in single parent homes, 23%. Uh, it looks like Russia is second, which is 18%. I'm not sure what the... Uh, the welfare system is there. U- UK fourteen, France sixteen, whereas India's five percent, um, Brazil's ten percent. So it looks like, yeah. Do you know what? Like as a as a non scientific, I'm just looking at this. It looks like the correlation is there to what to, of what you're saying because I'm looking here. The most developed, I would say, Westernized countries which have welfare uh, states. Yeah, sorry, UK is 21%, US 23%, uh, Denmark 17 Germany 16 12 I mean, if you go to like Brazil 10%, Nigeria 4%, India 5%, you know. I wonder also how much that is cultural as well. Well, I mean, culture is actually, you know, one of the things that drives, um, you know, the creation of wealth. It's no... It's, yeah, yeah. It's no... Yeah, it looks like you're making a fair point there. Okay, so listen, let, let's say... Let's say I... I, I the evidence here points to that. Okay, maybe you're right. Maybe that incentive is it does exist. Uh, I mean, there will be outliers like Japan, seven percent. Um, but I can imagine that's a, a very cultural thing as well. Like yeah. my friend yeah. um, is married in, in Japan, and people just they just divorced is very divorce is very rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared to like the UK. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, cool. All right. So, so again, let, let's if if we come back to that original point, then so p- power over power and control over another. Um, is bad you know parenting is an interesting discussion but i would argue that parenting 
fundamentally is a um is is almost a trade um between the parent and the child in some sense but it's also a responsibility of the parent to you know nurture that child until they grow up to be an adult but after that like it's i would even argue that it's immoral for a parent after their child has become an adult for them to try and have power and control over them so can we agree there yeah I, I mean, I'd add a slight difference there. It depends if you're still paying for them. <laughs> you, do you know That's what I mean? Fair. Like, like if my kids, if my kids are still in my home, it's my bloody rules. Exactly. I, don't, I don't care. But, but look, I, I generally agree with you. Okay, let, let me put another scenario. What about employment? Well, I mean, that's again, um, that that's a private property question. Is that um, I have a business, so that's my private property. I decide to hire you, so I'm I'm going to pay you something. Now I definitely have um, power and control because you're you're extend you're an extension of my property in that sense um now you're getting remunerated for your time and i'm not forcing you to have to work for me because you can just go work somewhere else. that's true yeah okay okay so if if i fundamentally agree with you which i do therefore any argument for having the state and the state having some kind of monopoly over violence and rules and controls and you know, private property, etc. You will be able to go back to this and, and deduce that I am being a hypocrite because well, because I'm saying people shouldn't have power control. Therefore, any and and I shouldn't be a hypocrite. But if I then give an argument up uh, defence for the state, therefore I will be a hypocrite because I've said I don't agree with power control. Well, th- this is like we we just need to define it. So, so I guess you're you're basically you know you've you've summed it up. But I, I think what we need to define is like is slavery bad, um, and how do we define slavery? Slavery is having the involuntary power and control over. So, so, so maybe let's just nuance it a little bit there. Then is slavery okay? W- would we agree that slavery is bad? Well, in terms of the commonly agreed understanding of what slavery cool. is yes of and, course and c- can we- because that is complete control over somebody and also somebody like you, you consider them almost like a, as part of your private property exactly so so let's let's assume then c- can we define slavery as the involuntary power and control over another is that fair yes so so in other words um the slave has no voluntary choice the, the slave has no choice whether somebody else has power and control over them. Yes. Cool. Because I think, you know, then that probably solves the parenting thing is that the child in some way, you know, kind of does have a choice because, you know, if if the child really, 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 really wants to, they can escape, but they ain't going to do that because, you know, Mm -hmm. they need mommy and daddy's help in a sense, right? Yeah. So So, we're agreeing, we're we're kind of agreeing that aspects of, your own child being your <laughs> my children aren't my well actually they are my slaves sometimes. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I like on the weekend go and fucking mow the lawn otherwise you're not getting your pocket money. So yeah, yes, yeah. there is a there's a certain amount of child slavery that happens within the parenting circle. But I think we know that we know the difference between what is uh, acceptable and what is abusive. And Correct. Correct. By your current terms, I'm currently agreeing that any form of control, absolute control, you know, with the threat of violence over somebody else is bad. I agree. Yeah, and, and I think involuntary is probably a strong word there as well yeah. that we need to mix in. Cool. So then the other two that I want to do here is um, stealing or taking by force. Um, stealing or taking by force someone else's shit. That's bad, right? Yeah, uh, yes. Okay. I know where you're going with all this. I feel like I'm about to be uh, I'm being railroaded into something, but that's fine. <laughs> yes, I think I think stealing. 
stealing. Right, depends how again, it depends how you define stealing. Let me just think about it. Mm. Okay. Sometimes let me think, let me think. Yes, okay, but in a scenario if somebody was hungry and they stumbled into a farmer's orchard and stole an apple, mm-hmm. I'd be like, fair enough. But generally speaking, I agree, stealing is bad. Yeah, cool. I mean, th- there's, you know, th- you know, in that kind of a scenario, then it's up to, you know, that farmer to decide whether, um, you know, the the loss of the apple, um, you know, was a fair trade for, you know, this person who's, you know, poor bastard is starving. So, so that that's kind okay. of a... That's something that people can voluntarily decide on their own. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this one's an interesting one because I, I kind of, again, I had this really, you know, cosmic conversation with this chick yesterday and, and we, we kind of talked about theft as, you know, a almost like a, a thing that we biologically know is bad. So it's like, it, it's not, you know, a lot of people talk about morals as like, you know, things that have developed culturally, but I would argue like theft is one of those things that is, um, it's not even cultural. Like there is no culture anywhere that exists that theft is actually um, not frowned upon. Like wherever wherever you are, even if you're not the victim, if you just see, you know, two people and one person like punches the other one and takes their shit and runs off, you, you don't have to be taught, you know, you, you don't have to know law. You don't have to be taught shit to know that, wait a minute, that's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it's, it's almost innate um, and it, stems from the reality of how you know nature has evolved over millions and billions of years which is territory or private property you know in in the um in the extension for humans is a uh, fundamental reality it's not just some cultural construct and and when we you know when we throw private property out the window um for some sort of utopian ideal what we do is we degenerate society because we move against um, you know what has naturally allowed us to evolve and and, and build, um, and then the, the the last negative I'll throw in there is this. You know, can we agree that it's always a negative for unprovoked violence towards another? Yeah, of course, that's an easy one. Yeah, that, that's an easy. One. So so cool. So and again, that that's actually tying it back to private property. That's actually a transgression of private property um, when we properly define private property as starting at yourself. You, you know, each person owns himself, mm-hmm. um, and and that's sort of where it starts. Like if 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 we can agree there, then that's another example of you know the the I guess the the a priori truth of of, of private property. So, is there anything you want to dig into on those ones, or those those ones pretty? No, simple? but I think I think we need to play it out because obviously it's 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 very obvious where you're going with this. It, like you've established mm-hmm. a framework of of arguments against some of the things the state does but but then i'm thinking i'm gonna have to go into the nuance whereas i'm gonna have to make myself a hypocrite for some of my arguments but i'm comfortable with that that's fine all right well then let's um let's then talk about maybe let let me actually throw like i'm unprepared for this you've obviously prepared those but let me let's say i throw a couple of things at you um and this was out preparations but like i spent some time before looking at like maslow's hierarchy of needs and things like that and blah 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 but do you agree that humans naturally organize themselves um 
yes, we naturally organize ourselves um, along along shared values, not not along laws. Laws emerge from shared values, but we naturally organize ourselves along shared values. That's the truth. Yeah. Are shared values always true, or it depends what those shared values are? Could it be shared objectives? Could we have not share values but share share outcomes? Absolutely. So, so that's where economics comes in, is that we might not share values, but we can still organize ourselves um, by trading the product of our labor. Um, and that's where economic trade comes in. Um, and that, that, is, that ends up being a positive for us both, so long as it's voluntary. Um, and, and, you know, if we transgress, you know, one of the, you know, truths of private property, like if, so if someone comes and, quote unquote, um, you know, takes from somebody else forcefully without their voluntary, um, you know, consent, mm-hmm. then we sort of go into the realm of, you know, immorality as opposed to morality. So, so yes, we, we either organize around shared values um, or we organize around voluntary economic exchange. Uh, do you think, um, I'm not sure on this one again, I haven't prepped. If I don't, if I, if I, if I, if I realize we're going to go down this, I may have come up with some more. Do you think humans are naturally violent? Um, yes. So yeah. we, we cannot remove violence. Um, that's a natural thing. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, okay. and all, all species are violent. All right, let, let's go on from this. Let's let's start building into this. I'm looking forward to this now. Shoot, shoot. Do you want to do you want to dig into that? No, no. I, I want you to go. I want you you to take me through that because I, I I know where this is going, but I want you to take me there. Okay. And then I'm going to work, kind of be, become the hypocrite. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, so I mean, th- th- this was another insight that I got from that um, that anthropology book that I mentioned earlier is that. Um, all, all species are um, fundamentally violent um, because, I mean, if we if we know that, for example, um, if if we agree that all resources are scarce, um, and that we all subjectively value everything different, and that again the future is uncertain, um, all interpersonal conflict is always going to exist, insofar as things are scarce. And that life is uncertain. It's always going to exist. You cannot remove that unless you remove uncertainty and scarcity. And the only like the only way you remove uncertainty is you move towards being a North Korea. And you you know the only way you remove scarcity is you give people the illusion that nothing is scarce, which is bullshit. So basically, violence and interpersonal conflict will always exist. It's not something that we can remove. And and that is just a function of and the natural world being uncertain and scarce so like we, we cannot mm-hmm. remove it so the question then is how do we best manage it and, and and this is where the discussion of you know do we do we have a top-down authority tell us how we should live or do we have a bottom-up you know way of organizing ourselves as individuals first um and then as you know groups of people with either aligned values or um between groups of people who may not have aligned values but have an economic incentive to do so. And that's really where the thing diverges is are we going to go top down and approach, you know, the organization of humanity through tyranny or are we going to go bottom up and organize it through territory? And that was actually, I should probably touch on that as a point as well is in Robert's book is that if you look at throughout all the species on the planet, um, particularly like mammalian insects are a little bit different, um, but mammalian species um, or, you know, all sorts of animals, they literally organize themselves through tyranny or through territory. There is no other option in the natural world. 
And we, um, as human beings, um, keep, you know, sort of switching between the two. Um, and mm -hmm. my contention is that whilst territory or private property, like if we emerge from that point, it might look a little bit more messy. You know, it's much more fragmented. It's much more localized. But I would argue that it's freer and fairer um, and it leads to a better society. Um, it, it's not a utopia. It doesn't mean that violence won't exist. You know, we, we take as a given that violence will always exist because, again, we come back to scarcity and uncertainty. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the requirement to protect yourself, you know, and then the right to protect yourself is so important. But um, I think that is a million times better than the, the tyrannical option, which is a top-down authority makes dictates and decrees for you based on what their definition of um, morality and ethics is. And, and that's where I think we need to kind of make the choice because I, I don't believe we end up, it's kind of like a um, each side has a slope um, and, and you can't sort of have both because the more you go down one side of the slope, the more you move away from the other. Okay. Okay. So your so the bottom up approach that you, you, you think is the best approach based around territory Mm -hmm. are, are, are there any examples where this has happened are there any examples where this is happening right now i mean right now like i would argue that um you know bitcoin could be considered one example i mean the early american settlers were also another example um you know that's sort of where libertarian thought you know really first emerged is this idea that you know man has inalienable rights um, you know, the, the freedom to speak, the freedom to organize, the freedom to protect yourself and all of those sorts of basic um, elements of the Constitution. And, and, you know, you can look at America and from a results perspective is it went from a barren land, you know, with settlers in the 16 and 1700s. Within 100 years, it became the, the largest economic power on the planet from zero to like, you know, number one on, on the basis of that. Now, no, you know, it wasn't 100% clean. You know, you had all sorts of different people. Yes, you know, there was some slavery. But, you know, the the, the abolitionists, the original libertarians, you know, who they, they were the ones who first, you know, were able to transcend what was the status quo back then, which was slavery is normal. Because, you know, mind you, that was um, slavery was happening all around the world. It wasn't, you know, unique to America. Like, you know, there's, there's all these idiots that say that, oh, the only Ameri reason America's prosperous today was because of slaves. Well, if we use that logic, Brazil, who imported three times the amount of slaves that America did, should have been three times more prosperous than America. So, so that's not true, um, uh, objectively speaking. So, you know, we, we had that in the early days of America, that, you know, America really started to go down when they removed the ability to secede, to, to secede from, you know, the the union, which, you know, happened with that idiot Abraham Lincoln when he, um, when he turned America into the United States um, of America. And th this is where, I guess, you know, we're on this um, weird period of history for the last, you know, 150 years odd, um, where, you know, the Industrial Revolution and s scale mass scale skewed the incentives for um for basically organization around um you know i guess um numbers more than anything else which which gave the state um an advantage and ability to build a monopoly particularly around violence first and then everything else um and we kind of deviated away from societies that were freer like you know 
there's all this talk about, oh, the wild, wild west was a dangerous place. Yeah, you look at the what happened in the wild, wild west was, you know, two people who had a problem with each other went out and, you know, shot each other, but they didn't go out and rob and, you know, break people and, you know, rape and all that sort of stuff. So, like, the, the statistics around all of those things that people um, know as bad, like rape and robbery and all that sort of stuff, were completely different in the early days of America than they are now when... Um, when we sort of degenerated and changed the time preference. So yes, there is examples, but we also need to remember that this is, um, it's an evolutionary process. It's, um, it's something that is emerging. Like I'll, I'll give one more example before I shut up on this point is um, you look at early England when, um, you know, in the days prior to Adam Smith is you had these farmers who were originally like um, serfs and, you know, they, they had been living on this land and they started, you know, producing um, food and all this. Sort of thing. And, and they created their own prosperity without, um, you know, the, the monarch or the state or anything like that telling them what they should or should not do. Like they, they did that themselves. And then what you ended up having was um, when the monarch realized that uh, they could produce wool at a better rate than, you know, countries overseas could produce something else like silk or whatever and they wanted to trade what they did was they threw those farmers off the land um so, so there was a transgression of private property they had nowhere to go they became these paupers who went into london who were poor who became beggars who who who, who no longer had roots to you know their own territory they, they were basically dislocated people and they you know they 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 degenerated the land and what they did was that, you know, the, the monarch started, you know, building its own, um, you know, complete monopoly in that sense. And, and that's sort of what spawned people wanting to get the fuck out of England and kind of, you know, take the, the essence of man's free will and, you know, man's right to his own property starting with himself um, to a new land and starting it fresh. So, you know, all, all of these times, like, I mean, e- even down to, you know, starting a business and starting a company, like, you know, you start something, you build it. That, that That's a, you know, extension of you as a, you know, private property owner um, with, you know, you, you turn your idea into something functional. You then, you know, have a voluntary consensual relationship with somebody to come on as your employee to sort of add, you know, their time and energy to, you know, the, the extension of that. So, you know, the, the, that's the natural way things work and they work despite the stupid state getting in the way um, of things um, through meaningless regulation, fucking bureaucratic red tape so that they can justify their existence. And um, so, so I would argue it's, it's like it exists alongside the, um, the leeches. And the reason we haven't noticed the leeches that much is because the productivity of, you know, something like, capitalism and a, and a free individual is so powerful and and the momentum of technology is so powerful that it's just carried the state alongside it um for this long but you know here we are at a point where you know technology's plateaued for a little while like we've had a lot of um you know if you look at peter Thiel's work he always talks about this we've had heaps of innovation and development in you know bits and bytes but nothing in atoms and we've kind of you know reached the 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 zenith of like the value that bits and bytes give us so you know now you've got you know complete encroachment of the state in terms of how much they're taking from people and all this sort of stuff so so we're at a really ugly period of history now where um (laughs) you know these these monopolies are 
shaky. And in fact, they've probably spawned the next version of Monopoly, which is these technocratic fucking um, behemoths like your Facebooks and Googles and, and Netflixes that um that are a new problem that we're going to have to deal with. So. Yeah, listen, I, I, I don't disagree the state has gone too far. It's, it is ugly. Um, I've got to try and get through the fourth turn in this weekend for an interview next week. Um, mm-hmm. But but a couple of things. Okay. I mean, I, I can't ever get away from a couple of key points. Okay. Firstly, is this natural? Like, because we have different versions of states that have built up all around the world and as you said it's it, it's actually the generally kind of like democracies of some kind and and i know people in america say well we're not a democracy we're federalist blah 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 but just at the same time like let's, let's just cross the democratic processes where you have the ability to vote or you have authoritarian leaders is is this a natural occurrence therefore are we trying to fight for something that can't possibly happen. So therefore, is there a better fight trying to make better of what you have? Because that's something I always come back for. Like, I, I, I there's nothing you you will say on paper with regards to um, libertarian ideals that I, I disagree with. Maybe, maybe minor things, but of course, it sounds so much better. But but not everyone is a libertarian. We have a lot of assholes. We have um, people are violent. People are selfish. People do like to have power and control over people. So if it's not the state, perhaps. You know, perhaps it will be warlords as such. And and I know there's like Stefan Levera passed me a paper to read. I think it was a Rothbard one that or Mises one, Mises one, which was like no warlords won't appear, which was a written argument for the for, for why they won't. But they do appear. You know, there are warlords in <laughs> um in certain states which don't have a functional structural government. I mean, Afghanistan comes to mind, but also you get them in Africa as well. Um, so I still come back to the point where I, 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 if you, if you offer me, uh, tyranny or democracy, I take democracy. Okay. Uh, 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 but I, I agree it's got shit. So should we not be fighting for a better democracy rather than spending time on an idea that, and I look, and I understand other people would be like, no, we should, because it's the right thing to do. But I just like, I'm just like, "Mm." and then the other thing is that what about the people who want to live in a state structure? What about people who say, actually, do you know what? I, I hear your idea. Like, for example, I think one important part of um, your idea about uh, territory is the ability to defend yourself, therefore the ability to have guns to protect yourself. I'm assuming that's an important part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. gun, guns are arbitrary. It just like if we didn't have guns, then you should have the right to have a knife. Like so, so it's yeah, you know, yeah. Or if we all, all, all that stuff. things, yeah. Like, the, but yeah. there is a very there is a very big difference between having this conversation, say, with an American and say with a person in the UK. You know, and and I the, I, I defend the Second Amendment as a, uh, to my English friends, having spent a lot of time there because I understand it. At the same time, it just very very few people would want something similar here and you can make all the, the like people can make the arguments from a libertarian principle or from a u.s second amendment position and say well you know 
what are you going to do about like if someone comes into your house with a gun and you haven't got a gun? It's like, well, do you know what? It's such a rare occurrence that I'm willing to live with that life. I'm glad there's no guns in my house. If I lived in the US, I might have a gun, but I'm glad there aren't. And I'm glad guns aren't as prevalent in our society. And yes, innocent people do get killed. They do get shot and killed. They get in the crossfire of uh, uh, gangs or they just get murdered. It happens, right? And it happens with knives as well. But there isn't a big desire within our country for that to happen. If I went down the pub with all my friends and asked them, you'd get zero people saying they want that. And also, if you start explaining these structures, a lot of people will be like, no, I actually like living in a society that has a government. I, and, and especially, you know, I've got one friend, Tom, who will say, you know, yes, there is a lot of problems with the state. OK, without fucking doubt. But also, we have progressed as a civilized society by having the state in certain ways. We have certain things as part of that. So even if I agree with you, lots of people will be like, no, I, I disagree with you. I, we, I, I want the state. I want a government. I want democracy because I don't want the alternative. So let's, there's a couple of points I want to hit. This is where you're going to tell I'm a hypocrite. No, no, no. Um, let's, let's just hit a couple of points. So let's, um, let's, let's think about... Um, Problems and solutions. So, you know, when, when problems emerge in society, whether, you know, whether it's warlords or whether it's um, state or whether it's, you know, the the ridiculous mandates of the church, you know, like we, we look at um, problems happen and then what do human beings do when a problem emerges? What, what do we naturally do? We solve them. We solve problems. Correct. We, we, we figure out ways to solve the fucking thing. So, so that's, you know... We, um, you know, in a, in a pure economic order, the, um, the, the incentive to solve a problem um, is more monetary and economic in nature. Um, and, you know, what you end up having is like, you know, in an, in an open society or in a, in, a, in a free society where, you know, with free markets and stuff like that, what ends up happening is it's very hard for a monopoly to develop because competition, um, you know, emerges and allows us as human beings to solve a problem um in a in a competitive way and, and what we do that's the forcing function to solve a problem better smarter faster quicker and all that sort of stuff with, with with the use of less resources now like if we if we sort of um tie that back to um why the state emerged in the first place like you know we, we haven't had the state for longer than a couple hundred years and, and really this the state was the reaction to the problem prior to that, which was the church and how corrupt the church became as an institution um, over time. And, and the church itself was an answer to how corrupt, you know, the the empire, which was, you know, Europe or, you know, some of the other, um, some of the other uh, uh, kingdoms and shit like that uh, were before. So, so, so you've got this, um, like if we look at what some of the problems that the early state was trying to solve was actually like the emergence of this idea of a sovereign individual and the idea that private property was a real thing, um, you know, people came together and they thought, all right, the best way for us to protect these ideas, these natural laws of private property, and, you know, there, there was all sorts of other things like, you know, the right to speak and all this sort of stuff. They said, all right, let's let's vote in some representatives that can um, act as the people who protect those things. Now, that's all good and well. It's noble. Like, you know, we, we, we came up with these things to solve a problem. The thing is, the 
the solutions over time uh, decay, they derange, and they dement themselves to the point where they actually become the problem um, and where the nation state today does not um, protect property anymore. In fact, it, um, you know, it, it acts as the, the ultimate um, you know, thief, the, you know, the self-legalized thief. So um, it's, uh, you know, the, the argument here really sort of boils down to, you know, did we, uh, you know, move forward over the last, you know, couple hundred years since the, um, you know, since the, the fall of the dominance of the church, for example, uh, thanks to the state or in spite of the state, or is it a mixture of both? And I would say it's, it's probably like a 95-5 is that in the early days, you know, some of these systems and processes and particularly in the early days, there were hierarchies of competence. So like people who were sort of, you know, voted into into some sort of uh, representative position of power, particularly like you look at the early days of the American um, revolution is that those people were fucking super intelligent, man. They, you know, they were philosophers, they were, they were, they were, you know, deep thinkers, they were economists and, that they didn't want to rule, they they helped spread these ideas, um, and as a result, through competence, um, were able to achieve you know what I call natural authority as opposed to authority by fear. And and they set these rules in place which said, all right, we all have these natural um, inalienable rights, um, and that they created a constitution which was a set of rules that said, all right, this is going to apply to all of us um, who are all free men. Um, and you know we're, we're going to, to to use this as a as a set of like uh, blanket rules for all of us because they they align with how natural law functions. They're they're always true. They're true all the time, um, and they apply to everyone. Now um, that that initial framework or that basis, I, I would argue that that is not really statism. That that was sort of the original emergence of kind of like the libertarian ideals, um, and over time through the concentration of power and through the fact that it's very, very hard for, um, for, you know, generationally speaking for, um, the essence or the integrity of the original, um, you know, way people, uh, intended things, um, because that diminishes over, um, uh, over generational, um, you know, uh, movement, um, you end up in a situation where, you know, the the state gets worse and worse, whilst those initial the, the momentum from private property and all of these things that we libertarians say are good uh, kept uh, everything moving forward. So, so it's not it's not absolute one or the other. It's it's that the state was a necessary evil at the time, or sorry, it was a ne- it was a solution at the time. And it sort of has devolved into an unnecessary evil. And along that path, it started off as um, a necessary solution and it's become a necessary evil. And along that path, it became an unnecessary, sorry, it became a necessary evil. Um, But I think we've moved into the realm now where it's become an unnecessary evil and it needs to sort of get out of the way. So I I just want to touch on one last point there really quickly is um, you, you mentioned like, you know, Africa and all this sort of stuff where there's, you know, greater chaos and things like that. There's, there's a great, um, a guy called Claire Graves, who was a, who was a psychologist and, um, some sort of sociologist, but he was around the time of Abraham Maslow and that they were sort of good friends. And 
uh, Claire Graves developed this idea of uh, a way to look at the world through a um, through levels of, I guess, consciousness, and each level of consciousness has its own set of values, and he called it spiral dynamics. Um, a guy called Don Beck uh, expanded on it, and I encourage everyone who's li- listening to this to go grab a copy of Spiral Dynamics. But it kind of puts, you know, the world from an evolutionary perspective into a lens of how we grow through levels of values, and you know, it starts off at beige. Beige is like, um, you know where we all start, you know, it's like representative of, you know, the baby or the, you know, the, the self-centered asshole or whatever. It's like this, this, you know, me by myself and, you know, egocentric, nothing else in the world exists but me. Then we sort of evolved to the next layer of values, which is purple, um, which is the color in the, in the spiral and spiral is, so purple is like tribal thinking and the values around that are just like, you know, there's a few of us and we're all together, but there's a big scary world out there. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, uh, uh, for example, rain doesn't come from the evaporation of, um, of the lakes and anything, because none of that exists. It comes from some scary gods that we don't know who they are. So, so it's kind of like real victim. It's, you know, you, you see that in the emergence of tribes. And then we move from, you know, the next level of consciousness is um, is the red color, which is kind of like the power god or the tyrant. And that's someone who realizes that they can transcend that fear-based, tribal-based mentality. And they come up with, you know, this notion of I am more powerful than you. So, you know, I will subjugate you. And, and that's kind of between tribalism, between purple and red is where a lot of non-Western cultures are still stuck. Like if you look at, um, you know, a lot of South America and Southeast Asia and Africa and all that sort of stuff, they're sort of stuck there. And each each level has its, um, you know, set of values. And if you try and solve uh, problems in that level through the lens of another level, which I'll, I'll keep going up to the top eight levels, um, you, you, you get this um, disconnection. In, in society. So if we move up from red, you get into the blue level. And th- this is sort of where you see the emergence of, um, of whether it's religion or the state is the blue level is all about rules and process and structure and system. And um, it's back to, you know, about we and um, it, it kind of puts the lid on the the red and it allows that to sort of uh, function a bit better and, and it's it's a, it's another level up. And then we move from blue, you know, we sort of emerge out of blue and America was probably the first place to emerge out of blue is this orange level. And orange is kind of like scientific, scrutinized, um, significance-driven, individual-driven again. It's, um, it's uh, entrepreneurial in nature. It, you know, it's asked questions. It's inquisitive. It's less about structure and it's more about innovation. And then from there, we sort of emerge into sort of the green level. And the green level is this idea of, you know, back to, um, you know, oneness and we're all hippies and we're all together. And it's, um, you know, it's all about connectedness and love and peace and harmony and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of, um, you know, young socialists and stuff like that, they come into green and they sort of, they're born into a world that is quite orange because it's, you know, it's built wealth and capital and all this sort of stuff. But what they do is they disregard the, the, um, the, the systems and the structures in blue and they disregard the innovation and the entrepreneurialism in, in orange and they just believe that the values in their side of things are, are all right. So then when we sort of transcend from green, we go into yellow and yellow is this idea of there's no right level at any particular point in time. It's about having the, um, the maturity to be able to move through and apply the right 
solutions to the right problems within each level of um of you know i guess development of a society and and it's it's such a powerful um lens through which to view a lot of these things in is that whilst i'm an anti-statist i recognize that we had to go through that phase to get to a better phase and libertarianism and bitcoinism is actually much more like the yellow phase which is there is a time and a place for structure there is a time and a place for entrepreneurial thinking there is a time and a place for um you know community but they're they're all very contextually based and we need to root them in like what I was discussing earlier, these a priori truths, and we need to make sure they're consistent with things that we recognize as bad, um, you know, like theft, like slavery, like, uh, you know, aggression. And we need to align them with what's good, which is voluntary trade, freedom to think, free, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, um, it's, it's quite a broad answer, but I think to, to kind of sum up my thoughts here is that Yes, you know, people are going to think that they require the state because that's part of, you know, the indoctrination that they've received. But, you know, in order for us to to change the world, we need to think differently. And if we continue on, um, you know, trying to solve the problems, you know, again, I'll just use that Einstein quote as, you know, trying to solve the problems of today with, you know, the with the thinking that created the problems, you know, we're not going to get, uh, we're not going to transcend. And, and this is why... Okay. Um, I think you know libertarianism as a notion is it's not it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when um, because it's it's a it's a coming back to natural law as opposed to democracy which I believe moves away from natural law. Next up, I talked to Alex more about libertarianism, but before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, firstly, we're going to talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying Bitcoin and the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. You want to know why, right? Well, firstly, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange and security is really important to me. You know that by now. Also, they have the very best in class in customer service. So listen, you've got any issue, if you're going to reach out to Kraken, they're going to get that shit fixed for you, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever time it is, you just have to reach out to them. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have got all the tools you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. Also, if you're on the move, if you're sat on a plane, if you're on a train, if you're out driving, well, if you're not driving, if you're in the passenger seat and you think, shit, I want some more Bitcoin, you can whip out their beautiful mobile first app and start buying Bitcoin on the go. Also, with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or you can download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, last today and never least, it's BlockFi, the now of Bitcoin and financial services. Look, with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I've done this. I'm a customer and I just went over one Bitcoin in interest since I signed up. I think it was like in February, which is super cool. Now, you can also use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. And with some really exciting things coming from BlockFi, I know they're going to be smashing it during the rest of this year and next year. If you're interested in checking them out, I recommend you do your own research first, then head over to blockfi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, so so that's a good point though, where you've you've said like, I understand 
why we've had democracy and we we had to have it. it's like this natural evolutionary process but we've kind of kind of, kind of got to the point where where like what is the next step what is you know and, and i know we're going to talk about bitcoin yeah. with that um so my view is is how how do you move away from the state and what are the negative consequences because there will i don't believe state is 100% bad um I don't believe everyone who works for the state is 100% evil. I don't believe all politicians are, are bad. I think there are a lot of terrible politicians and dumb people in positions of power. But I also believe there are a lot of people who want to do good things. And there's certain things you know, I've discussed with libertarians before Like I think are, are, are good things. For example, um, as, and, and I know you'll argue against this, but I, I like the, 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 support, the support for disabled rights we have here, that if you are to build... Uh, any kind of commercial building you have to consider access for people with disabilities now yes i fully understand every argument against this i've already had this before i still think it's good i still think it's great that somebody who is going say to the cinema who's in a wheelchair knows they can get to their seat and watch the film i think that's brilliant and there are other things that that i i think good that the state does um so I totally understand the argument against the police, uh, especially right now, the, the things they're doing wrong. But I don't believe that, that necessarily private police forces will be better. And I, I did get intrigued before by, and I'm, I'm not fully, like, I've not fully gone through the process of rationalising. I think it might have been Eric Weinstein who said, or maybe it was Sam Harris, said that the state should have a monopoly on violence. I know you're going to 100% disagree mm -hmm. with that. Um, but there are certain things like I've been process of being trying to go through uh, to to understand things. Like I understand that you'll say that any kind of welfare system is utter shit because you know it's firstly it's theft and the government redistributes money in a very poor way. But there are parts of the world and, and and countries which have raised up and are able to support people who in, who are in need um so i guess one of the things i would then two two key questions i would have for you what do you do about people who want the state like i i i've questioned is it possible to have a society where there's an opt-in and an opt-out um and i don't know if that's naive but but the second thing is if 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 we're going to move on from the state, how, how does it happen? And what is the processes we go through? And do we A, A, B test what the state should have and shouldn't have? So, for example, like I think a lot of libertarians struggle with the idea of open borders. I, I, I know it's within like the, the libertarian like ideals that you're meant to be against uh, border, border control. But I think some of them realize there's some definite risks and negative externalities that can come from open borders. Um, what do you do about defense? What do you do about regulation of nuclear power? What do you do about, do about companies like DuPont who've poisoned the waters? You know, with the, these are some of like the key issues. I let's deal with that one last one. So, in in a in a, a society that has no state, what do you do about a company like DuPont who who just poisoned a whole 
I mean, it was a town. I, I can't remember. It went further. Massive increases in cancer cases. The animals were dying on the farms. There's a really great film about it, actually, called Dark Waters. And Nathaniel Rich, the journalist from Vanity Fair, kind of wrote the the big investigation into it. Um, and it, the process that went through to actually prosecute them was ridiculous. Like it took years. But the point being is regulations over those chemicals exist for a reason. And they were able to be prosecuted and forced to compensate people they poisoned. If you don't have a state, what happens in that situation? Okay, I mean that's that's really pretty easy to answer. Is um so so there's a, there's a great um I'll, I'll use an analogy and then we'll then we'll hit this. So there's this idea of um let let's say we've got a forest um and you know the you know the community or the market um say needs needs wood. Um, from the forest, there's there's three different ways that we can um, cut the trees down for the wood that's required for people to you know whatever build houses or whatever right that the, the wood's needed from. So we have the completely uh, public method. So that's like socialist, communist. They they decide how much wood everyone should have, um, and you know we know how that turns out because the the socialists or the communists have no idea how to measure what the actual need in the market is because they don't believe that um, people have a subjective need. They believe that they should, you know, allocate accordingly. And what they inevitably do is, you know, people who need more get not enough and people who don't need it get some and they end up fucking destroying the resource and burning it up and, you know, Bob's your uncle. So we know that that's a fuck up. The um, the second way is the um, public-private mixture, which is the government um, owns quote unquote, that public property, so the forest, and it then sells a license to some private entity because it says, oh yeah, you know, private uh, private enterprise knows how to price it properly. They know how to get efficiencies out of it and they'll, you know, sell it at a better rate. So we don't have to do all that sort of stuff. We just will sell them a license. So now what you get is a weird situation where um, that private provider, that, that enterprise they don't they don't view that forest as their own capital they view it as um this uh you know they, they rent it kind of like you know picture a rental car versus your own car you know you treat your own car nicely you, you jump in a rental car and you don't give a shit you know how you treat it so they they will say all right my incentive is to make as much as i can from this capital so that i can generate enough income now while I am renting the right to use this because it's not mine, I'm going to rape and pillage this fucking forest and I'll chop down every single tree so that I can maximize my income now while I still have it. So there's, there's a complete moral hazard there when you remove the element of private property from the entity that is actually performing the action of, um, of you know, deforestation. And then you have what I believe is the, the proper way to do it, which is instead of some public entity like the government um, owning the resource it's that you have a private entity so someone who owns the forest and now the natural incentive disincentive sort of comes into play here is that when you have to balance your um your current uh, income with the capital that you have so you know your your capital is your trees in that forest and if you chop all the fucking trees down this year you're broke next year and you're going to starve because you've just you know, completely deforested your own thing. Um, you have a natural disincentive to go and destroy 
the environment or to to rape and pillage your own resource because it's yours. You know, this is the difference between having your own skin in the game versus having zero skin in the game and renting it off some, you know, faceless, uh, you know, wordless uh, entity that is the government or the public. So with that analogy in mind, um, the biggest problem we have, I think, with these large-scale companies is, first of all, these companies only get so large because they can, um, you know, when, when you look at the people who work within these companies that help write up their laws and get them around things, they're ex-regulators and ex-government people who help them navigate the quote-unquote regulations so that they can get some sort of um, monopolistic advantage in some sense so that they can do shit that other competitive enterprises can't do. So what you end up in is, is in a situation where, um, A, the emergence of a DuPont is a function of the um, the existence of government. Um, B. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. It, it, the size size is irrelevant. Let's forget size at the moment. You will still have chemical companies. You, you will okay. see chemical companies. Yes. Okay. So, and, and they still might have one one place that is uh, leaking chemicals into the water, mm-hmm. which is killing animals and giving people cancer. And with no basis for regulations or what what the regulation should be, we know we know every instance when companies self regulate, they do so in their own favor. They do without an in, without an independent regulator to regulate. You know, I can't remember the details of the Dupont thing exactly, um, but without an independent regulator, where are the standards set? And if there are no standards, then uh, companies like this could easily just poison the well for others. Well, not exactly, because what that is, so if I'm poisoned, I've had a transgression on my private property. So I have then the ability to sue whoever poisoned me. So so that is an aggression that is a violence against me. So I'm not saying, you know, libertarianism doesn't remove the notion of private property. Remember, it, it holds. Yeah, but where does, where, where, does the, where does the regulation about what is decided as poison, what isn't poison, come from? Uh from the evidence of okay you know in like that's what a you know a, a a journalist would do that's what an investigator would do that's what someone who is hired to to you know find but that's too arbitrary that's too arbitrary when you're dealing with something as complex as chemicals and chemical compounds and the risks of causing uh, cancers or you know uh, uh, other kind of illnesses you, you can't have that solved by a journalist. And by the way, it was a journalist who, who uh, exposed the DuPont situation. Doesn't surprise um, me because it usually, but, usually is something. Well, no, actually, sorry, it was a lawyer. It was a lawyer. Sorry, it was a journalist who told the story. It was a lawyer who took the case on. Mm. But but my point being is, like, if you don't have a basis for for what what is legally allowed... Then, 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 where do you start from? And then it can become arbitrary. You know, one place that it, it is considered poison, one it isn't. I think certain things. Same with like nuclear power, nuclear power stations. I think you have to have some very strict regulations about that because we also have psychopaths. You know, we we have dangerous people, and I think we have to have some certain situations is where if you can give someone like the big red button that can cause cause very significant. So, for example, if we didn't have the regulations around nuclear power and anyone could be, be, build a nuclear power station, you could end up having a situation where you get another um, like a, a power station meltdown. Yeah, but the, the power station meltdown was a function of the state. So, so like, if you just zoom out oh, a little bit. Uh, no, 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 no. So, no, I agree with you in, in that scenario, 
in, because it was the Russian state, you know, sorry, I've just eaten a piece of chocolate. Yep. Um, the Russian state in terms of what happened in Ukraine, well, the Soviet state, then, God, someone's going to correct me on my um, yeah, history here. Same, same, um, same as Fukushima, same as like all the yeah. 35 year old. But the point being is all the power stations now have regulations they must follow. Correct, but but what what you're assuming is that um is that somebody who like who runs their own nuclear power business wants to have their own fucking capital, their own nuclear power plant leak or fucking blow up. That's not the case. Like the case is that they're going to want to no, no, continue to improve it and make it better, greedy pe- so greedy that that people, risk is minimised. Yeah, but greedy people cut corners or make mistakes. I I, I really struggle with that one. I think there are certain things that require regulation. From 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 a central force, maybe not. Let's like, I'll even give ground on the state. First, first of all, we need to like um, look at. So, what what's the this central power that apparently applies regulation? Like, how do they ensure? Like, because what it's effectively trying to do is ensure that good actors, um, you know, are good, and that bad actors are punished. Right? Is they use um, the threat. Um, of flying, so that so that so the economic threat of shutting the business down or closing them down or doing all that sort of stuff as the the forcing function to ensure that they you know are good actors that they behave appropriately. The problem though is instead of um, when when it's a state applying that pressure, instead of that that remuneration going to a potential victim, the state just takes it for themselves. <laughs> so. It um it kind of defeats the um, purpose. Now, in some cases, yeah, you know, the you know a lawyer like a good lawyer like that Dupont thing that you're mentioning will go and sue Dupont and they'll get damages for the individuals. But we got we got a couple things here that we need to to sort of touch on to to really make this whole thing make sense. Is number one, um, you know, without the state, you know, these chemical companies won't get as big. But that let's let's just assume that there are some bad actors out there who do dumb things, right? So what what happens is because you know libertarianism anarchism isn't the the absence of law um it's the adherence to natural law and you know when we extend from you know private property and you know someone aggressing against me against my voluntary permission i poisoning my fucking water or something like that you you end up in a situation where you can go after those um and you can come together with a class action and go after those companies and close them down send them bankrupt um sue them for the transgression of property rights, you know, against a number of people. So you, you have the same forcing function, but instead of a regulator managing that, what you have is a free market going after them. Like you, you have lawyers going after them, which are the same people who are going to go after them in, you know, whether it's the, the state regulator doing it or, you know, uh, individuals who are directly affected doing it. Um, and you, you kind of disincentivize uh, the bad actors there. The, the last thing I'll also touch on is so I, I studied engineering when I was um, when I was younger and I was part of um, I was part of a group uh, of uh, like a, an association called Engineering Australia and Engineering Australia was part of like engineers worldwide and it was kind of like a you know a body that was a voluntary body you become a member of it and you know being a part of that you know you sort of it's, it's almost like CPAs and all that sort of stuff where you know, it's, it's a non-government entity that has a set of standards that, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're worth your salt, um, like if, if you're a good engineer or whatever, you become part of that institute and you sort of, you have that as a badge of honour basically. And 
that's effectively like in a, in a free market kind of scenario in the absence of a centralized state regulator who's very, very, very easy to corrupt. What you have is, um, you know, uh, free companies coming up that will do their best to try and market themselves and they'll market themselves through the, um, you know, the, the joining of, um, you know, different uh, memberships like that through different institutions and blah, blah, blah. And what will happen is, yes, there will be some mess along the way. Yes, there will be some people who get poisoned. Yes, there will be some lawsuits. You know, some of these companies will get shut down. But what will happen is competition will be a, for- a much better forcing function to clean out the bad actors and, you know, create openings for good actors than will some centralized authority who's much more prone to um, being corrupted by one of these uh, DuPont-style monopolies who can get large as a result of knowing how to navigate the state and having enough money to lobby the right people to keep doing whatever they're doing that's criminal. So, so both are solutions, but the argument of the libertarian is that the status solution is actually one that causes more problems and more moral hazard than the um, libertarian solution, which is one where you allow competition and adherence to private property and the ability to litigate, um, you know, directly and and for for the injured party to claim damage as opposed to um, as opposed to the state to fucking you know pocket the damages. Um, it, it's a much better and fairer model, um, and we. How do you enforce uh, it? I mean, through in the same way as we enforce, um, you know, uh, the the payment of fines and things like that today is um yeah, but the payments of fines are enforced by the state. Yes, to an extent. So, I mean, it comes down to so. This is why I wanted to touch on the thing that you said earlier is about oh, you know, people want a state and. You know, what, what, what about the people who want a state? What I was going to mention there is that you can't get away from a community organizing itself around some rules that matter to them. And the thing is that may, you know, p- people might confuse that for a state. The problem that libertarians have with the current uh, incarnation of the state is your inability to leave or your inability to choose, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, the future is look, it will be one that looks more like, you know, these, these private cities, which are still jurisdictions where, you know, certain rules exist, where if that, you know, chemical company wants to operate there to provide a service, they have to adhere to a bunch of, you know, rules based on a contract that they agree to coming in. And they may have, for example, a bond. So let's say they want to service this city with these chemicals and, you know, they, they have to put up, you know, the, the requirement might be to put up a large bond in order to, you know, operate there. Now, they transgress against the property rights of the individuals within that um, community or that city. Then that bond is forfeit. Um, you know, the members can go after them. You know, the, 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 there's multiple legal avenues to go after somebody and do something like that. But but I'm saying again, this is a really important point. If there's no bond, how do you enforce a fine? I mean, in the same way as 
you know, a, a city would enforce a fine. I mean, at, at the end of the day... But that's a, that's the state. How, that's what I'm saying. You don't have a state to enforce it. So who is the enforce? Who gets to decide who gets to enforce it? This is where the market will probably determine um, over time by making mistakes like this. Um, give me an example, just an example, because like there there are a few examples like this. Like I think I think overall your ideas are net correct, but I think there are some flaws in it, and I don't know how you enforce the fine. Well, it's it's let, let's let's do it this way. So let's say um, the we start off and we're in the early days of creating these private cities, and we have these um these companies that come in and they want to provide a service, right? And one of them is a bad actor, and they decide to poison the water. Um, now that they, you know, in the beginning we didn't have a bond. You know, we didn't think about that. We thought that oh, yeah, these people would be nice, and that's what they're doing. So a bunch of people die. Um, you know, they send a suit against that company. Um, you know, we go to whatever the court is in our jurisdiction because you know, again, it's not an absence of justice. Um, you know, the court is still there, and you know the. The, the legal, you know, we win because it's, you know, you did the wrong thing. Now, this company goes around, turns around and says, all right, we are bankrupt, we're shutting down, um, and we don't have the money to pay it up. So, so they don't get to pay it up, but they get thrown out of the jurisdiction. So their, their, their business is gone. Now, we may have had some, you know, things in the contract, which is, all right, your entire factory, which is in our jurisdiction, is now forfeit because, you know, th- this is what this asset is worth, blah, 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 blah. So, so you can go after that stuff. Um, and take it because they have transgressed against somebody else's uh, private property. So that stuff has been deemed through, um, you know, private natural law that you have transgressed on someone. So you now um, are liable for for payment. So so you'll go and take what you can now. Argue- How? Well, you go in there and you send a you know you send a auditor. Sorry, not an auditor. You you, you send a um like some person who provides that service, for example. So let's say at the moment you have, um, let's say DuPont had to, you know, didn't want to pay, they had no money. What would the government do? They would send um, an auctioneer in or someone to go in and take the asset, um, which are usually they'll send private companies to go in, take the shit, and then they'll auction it off in the market to recoup the money. And What if I don't let you in my property? Well, the the job of some of these, um, uh, what, do, what do you call it? Uh, let's say collections people will be to go in and take that. Now there is a they they have a legal document stating that you lost in this court in this jurisdiction, so they'll have the right to use force to come and take it because they have won the case. You with me? So yeah, it's not the removal of force; it's the appropriate use of force um, against a initial transgressor so that that right is perfectly well with what if i disagree with a court well you'll have to you know you know you'll have to disagree on some basis that makes sense based on um you know the law and and th- th- this is but, but, but what but but, the, but what what if i say i don't agree with the law well then you who set who, who sets to decide the law that's in the contract when you first come in there so the contract might no but what if, what it would no, but what if it's something where there's no original contract yeah. Well, this, that's then that's the fuck up of the of the people who allow. No, but what I'm saying, so, so I'm just saying, someone someone poisons the land or does something to me, and they get punished. 
and they, and they want they're ordered to issue a fine, but we don't originally have a contract. What if I just say I disagree with it? Well, I mean, so if it's really that bad, where there was no contract, there was no rules, there was no. So then the 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 onus then is on the person who allowed that person to come and transgress on them. So it's in the same way as you left yourself defenseless. So so again, th- th- this, you, what you're confusing there a little bit is the idea that in the absence of some sort of central authority that there will be absolutely no rules. And that's not how human beings operate. Like before, you know, I go ahead and give you the right to come into my house and do something, you know, we, we have some sort of, um, you know, contractual relationship. Now, you know, at scale, like if I'm allowing a plumber to come into my house, I'm not going to say, all right, sign this paperwork before you walk in um, just in case you break something. But, you know, we, we have an implicit contract. Um, you know, that states that don't don't touch or break my shit. So what happens is there might be in the early days people who are dumb enough to allow, um, you know, uh, entities or companies or service providers who who could do something sensitive or, you know, injure someone or harm someone. They could be dumb enough to allow them in without creating any fucking precedent for a contract or anything. And guess what? The consequence of making a dumb decision like that is that you have no recourse now, the, the, the improvement function in a free society is that the next time you ain't going to fucking do that, assuming you've survived. Um, yeah, but so, sorry, we've still not solved the problem. What if I just refuse to pay the fine? Well, then we come and take your shit with guns. Because okay, but what if what, what if I what if you come with your guns and I've got my guns and I shoot you first? Well, then we're going to fucking war. That's the thing. So yeah, and then this is the point. This is where I see it, like I see it as a degrading of like civilized society. I see it going to, into more kind of like kind of mad max but like a not like actual mad max of the film but just kind of like all out war because there's no base set of rules that we all fundamentally agree on well, no, the, like yeah. democracy but the thing about democracy is it creates the rule of law right and the rule of law whilst it might be shit at times it's a base set of rules that we can all agree on there is no base set of rules here there is there is so there is natural rules there is natural laws so 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 like common law for example is based on natural law so it's it's based on things like you know the private property theft is bad. You know you can't. Yeah, um, go and, so that's those very basic. They're very very basic ones that you can agree theft is bad. Private property, but there's more. The, the, like yeah. laws are complicated sometimes for a reason. So no, you know. they're not. They they just become overly complicated over time because we have idiots that think that they can apply one law to one person and not to another person. No, I agree. But I'm saying if if I don't agree with the law, or the, you you know, the, there is no base set of rules. There is only your very basic base set of rules, but I, I don't think it would take me long to come up with more complicated transgressions on these rules that that, that then have to be someone has to arbitrate over. No, no, and also, it, it makes it easier. Sorry to cut you off, but it makes it easier to weasel your way out of shit. The more complex law is, so if law is really basic and simple, um, and you know you come into a jurisdiction as an entity that wants to provide a service, um, and you 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 are aware of what those things are without too much complexity. Um, you know, it, com, com, like complexity is the enemy of cleanliness. So, so, so what we have in today's society, and this is a, again a result of the state, is the more regulations we create, the more of this complexity that happens, and the more we get mired in bullshit legal fucking sophistry. You know, to to identify something as simple as these dickheads poured chemicals into the water and it killed someone. So, so that's a fucking simple deductive process, but because no, of, no, of course, but, but okay, but let's make it complex. Maybe it didn't kill somebody. Maybe somebody's somebody got sick. Just got 
a little bit sick is what law does that break? Well, that that person who got sick needs to then first prove that you know this was thanks to this person who poured something into the water. So, again, th- th- these are all things that you know we you never solve them. You know, with a, th- there's no silver bullet solution in the beginning. But what will happen is we'll go through a few mistakes as all societies do, but we'll get better at creating some sort of contract that binds any service provider in our jurisdiction to be able to provide a service, particularly as the service gets more sensitive. So there might be a couple of mistakes in the beginning where you can't go and recoup the losses or you can't go and force someone to pay something because you've allowed the wolf into the fucking um, hen house. But the, the, the forcing function there again comes back to um, these uh, these cities or these communities being able to defend themselves. And, and this is, again, why um, it, that, that's such an important thing. So it's, you know, w- one of the most important things here is that in a, in a more open competitive society, so, you know, you have to take into account the fact that there'll be another competitor who would be doing it and might be doing it better, you know, and the competitor might have been the one who discovered that this person was a bad actor and doing something. Um, so, so you have the, like a whole community that goes, like if a whole community goes against the business that did something bad, that business will go bankrupt in that community. So, so their reason for existence is going to disappear. So that is the, that is the forcing, that is the, um, the disincentive for them to do the wrong thing. Yeah, but, but, but that's, that, that, that disincentive can happen now anyway as well. I mean, you know, the, well, not exactly. humans are greedy. Yeah, well, no, humans are greedy. Humans cut corners. Humans, like, uh, are abusive. Absolutely. You know, it is, Absolutely. But- and that will, conti- that will continue to happen. And people will also, sometimes there'll be monopolies and people won't have a choice to not work with that company. And I know the argument... You can't have monopolies in an, an, an anarchic or a um, libertarian sort of state because there's too much competition like so so a monopoly can only form i disagree i absolutely fundamentally disagree Te- technology would would enable uh certain monopoly like okay m- maybe not a not you have to define monopoly is it 100 percent? is it 100 percent? like is google monopoly you can say no because of duck duck go thing but it's essentially a monopoly right yeah, because google became a monopoly not because of its innovation google became a monopoly because it's the beneficiary of fucking trillions of dollars of money printing. No, I disagree. I, I think it became a monopoly because it created it created the best product when there was no friction to move from one to the other. No, no, no. That's how it started. Um, it's maintained the monopoly. So, so let, let's 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 talk about IBM and Apple, for example. IBM has been a computer company since the beginning of the 1900s. It was the most powerful computer company, and two dudes called fucking Steve, soldering some keyboards in a garage took over and became the best. So what happens is innovation always, 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 always beats a monopoly. Facebook. No, I'm, I'm not saying monopolies will live forever. No. I'm not saying monopolies live forever. I'm saying, but I'm saying, I, I think it's, I don't think you can say you will not get a monopoly in a, 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 hold on. You're about to have a light. Just don't think you can say. I promise you'll have a light bulb moment here is the no. reason, the reason these monopolies have occurred particularly these technocratic monopolies right now is because the financial markets are so fucking skewed so what you have is a situation where new innovate new innovative companies and new ideas that could potentially topple a google or an apple or a facebook by being better what ends up happening is there's so much capital on these guys balance sheets before the com- the competitor the competitor gets strong enough to to you know to shift the direction they buy them 
This is how... That might still happen. That might still happen. It will not happen when you don't have all of this excess cash at the moment. No, I, 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 I would agree that it, um, it, accentu- like it, it accelerates the problem. Okay, but I don't believe you can you can say that it wouldn't happen in an anarchist society. I just don't believe you can because you you still might have somebody who creates the best product and it's and it's more beneficial for everyone to use it. For example, eBay. eBay has a network effect, right? There are other smaller buy and sell things, but eBay has a network effect. You're most likely to sell your product on there because of the amount of users, and you're most likely to find what you want. eBay um, was able to use money from the public markets to go and acquire um, PayPal and to create a monopoly around who can pay via PayPal. So so trust me, it's it's a lot more complex than just assuming that um We're gonna to have to agree to disagree on this point. I think it can still happen. I'll I'll give you I'll give I, you another example. I'll give you another example. Um so let's say someone creates a really, really, really good product. So I'll, I'll use Amazon as an example. They serve the customer better and they do things better than most companies and they, they continually innovate. Now you could argue that, you know, Amazon's a you know monopoly in um in you know in the book space or, or whatever you know they're, they're a monopoly in like the online shopping space um now amazon does not a doesn't sell every product online because there's a million other um smaller shops but um what's important here is that in order like in in a free market where you a can't get close to the monetary spigot so you can't get the benefit of Cantillon effects because of um all the money that's being printed that gets basically flooded into financial markets that gives you uh, resources that your competitors don't have. So in the absence of that, the only way that you can stay on top is by continuing to provide a great service and be a good actor. Soon as you start becoming a bad actor or providing a bad service, what happens is a, comp- a competitor comes in and starts to eat your fucking lunch. And that is the normal um, disincentive for... Um, d- d- depends on depends on the company type, okay. Um, Give me an example of someone that can create something that somebody else can't muscle in on. I'm not, no, I'm not saying nobody can muscle in on, but but it depends what you define as a monopoly. If you say it's 100%, then of course not. But like if you could say, say it's like 80% of the market, right? So for example, Google is a bad actor. We know it's a bad actor. You know, we know uh, that it allows uh, censorship of content in China. We know it um, misuses our data. We know all these things. It is a bad actor. We all know that perfectly well i still use google because it's better than DuckDuckGo, and it's better than that whatever like yahoo and it's better than that stupid uh microsoft search i use it because it's the best mm-hmm. it, 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 and i know they're a bad actor and i know they misuse my data and i know know that but i stick with them because it's the best product cool so what else what other um advantages does google have that has helped you stick with them Primarily, I've st- it is ubiquitous and it's easy to access. But but primarily, the reason I've stuck with it is the best. It's just the best search results. Cool. So they've got Gmail. They've got um, they've also no no. Got- I don't even care about that. Even as a search engine, just the best search engine. Okay, fine. So um, the issue that happens is that um, for somebody now to compete with Google, um, you know, if they came up with a um, with a I guess Google's a, it's an interesting one. I, I would argue that Google would not have been able to get so large um, had they not had the benefit of, um, of being able to um, get all of that extra capital. Now, we, if we extend our timeline a little bit, though, 
is that Google's uh, business model still depends on advertising. Now, let's say um, that gives them a lead of 40 years or 50 years or 60 years in the digital space. Um, that might feel like a long time because it, you know, it also felt like a long time that IBM had the lead of computers for, you know, 70 years or 80 years. But then, you know, Apple as a competitor came in and, you know, uh, ate their lunch. So it could be that, you know, in a free society that, Google might become, you know, the largest player for for a short while, but you know, in the future where you know we move away from advertising, for example, and we move towards uh, search results or social networks that are based on you know streaming micropayments. So let's say you know uh, on Lightning or something like that, where you get just as accurate results, um, no censorship, um, and no advertising and all that sort of stuff slowly by slowly. And th- th- this is just, I'm making, sh- pulling shit out of my ass as a, I don't know what the future holds. If I did, you know, I'd be a billionaire. But um, the, the, these things come and go, that they're dynamic. And that's the most important thing is the state creates a situation where you remove um, the d- dynamic um, progression of uh, monopolies. So what you end up with is if you're large enough and if you've made enough money through through good innovation, so if you've created a monopoly through good innovation because you came in and you you know you you created something that didn't exist before, and I'm and I'm perfectly fine with that. You know, I think that's fucking fantastic. You know, Google succeeded, and you know, uh, uh, what's his name, Peter Thiel, really you know defines Google as a monopoly in the true sense of the term. Is they created a new market and they dominated it. Um, you you are fully entitled to having that. But the problem exists when you get so close to the monopoly on money and the monopoly on morality and the monopoly on regulations, i.e. the government, that you can then turn into a parasite that no longer adds value and you can exist by sucking value from society. And that's where um, the older the companies get, like, you know, you've got these old oil companies, actually big pharma is probably the worst one. I think they're like of all um, the most leaching companies because, you know, they emerged as these, you know, companies initially that may have solved some problems, but now just effectively, um, you know, exist to leach. So you create that incentive. So I would argue that it's a much worse world when you have the route that um that a company can take to to get large and stay large and stop adding value and remain in a position of call it power privilege uh, you know advantage because they can get close to the monetary spigot and then what they do is they help fund the creation of new regulation that limits another competitor to come in and eat their lunch like we I experience this every day now in the in the Bitcoin space. I want to come in and service European customers and UK customers. The amount of fucking horseshit I have to deal with. Oh, look, I don't disagree. Look, dude, listen. Look, I don't disagree with with. I don't disagree, and and I think perhaps we're going down like an unnecessary rabbit hole because because I think monopolies can exist, but very limited, very few. But I still think they might exist. Um, but we, I don't think we need to focus too much on that. Yeah, yeah. I think they'll maybe I, let's. Leave that with this. I disagree agreement. with you. Yeah, I disagree. With, I disagree with you on the the regulatory side of things. What about borders? Okay, Should we bo- have borders? Okay, borders. Yes. So, so borders. The only reason borders are a problem in today's day and age. So, so th- there's there's two parts to it. There's two pillars to discuss. Is border control is currently a welfare and wealth distribution problem. So, what happens is when if if you're 
if you assume that one of the state's functions is, you know, for welfare and wealth redistribution, when you open borders, you end up getting a bunch of fucking new people coming in who may or may not be adding value to society, that the the fewer and fewer productive people in your current border um, that are left have to um, pay for. <laughs> so, you know, that's like sort of you having a house, letting a bunch of people come in, and then they start eating all the shit in your um your fridge, um, sleeping mm-hmm. in bed and all this sort of stuff. So, you, like, in the current context of the state that is a welfare state that distributes wealth from one group to another um, and that literally subsists off the the taxation of the productive people, absolutely you have to have border control. Like, you, you can't without it because, like, you just get fucking overrun. Like, you, you're letting everyone into your house and you're doing you, – you paid for everything. What the fuck? You know what I mean? No, no, I, I mean, I agree with it. So, so, so that, that's really difficult. So then the other one is, you know, the risk of your, you know, the values of your community being diminished by allowing a bunch of people that you don't know to come in. And, and that, that, that one's where I think where a lot of the libertarians get hung up is, you know, what, what do we do? Because, like, if let's solve the first one first is if you remove the welfare state, then allowing anyone to come in doesn't really matter because, you know, they're not going to get any benefits by coming in. They don't get any refugee benefits. They don't get nothing. So the only thing that they can do is actually work and add some value. And, you know, they can either work for someone, they can start a business, so they can actually add value. So if you remove the welfare state, um, you actually eliminate a lot of the problem with immigration. Then the only problem you really have to deal with is this mass um, potential, you know, uh, you know, of people incoming that might uh, bring their culture and try and fuck your culture, right? So let's say, you know, one of the examples of, you know, that is, let's say you've got, you know, a, a good set of rules and, you know, we sort of operate on this set of rules in our community, in our city, in our in our region, and a bunch of people come and they say, yeah, 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 we'll follow those rules, you know, we agree with them, but they kind of bring their own shit and they come and start, you know, stealing from you, robbing from you and all that sort of stuff. So, that, that, that's a stickier problem and that's something that, you know, needs to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, when you start to sort of see people like that coming in, um, you may need to start thinking about who you allow to come in um, on that note. So, so, so that, that's probably the stickier part. But I think the first one is in the current status quo of how we live and that the fact that the welfare state exists um, and the fact that, you know, the productive capacity of a small subset of um, – you know, of the constituents in society is how all the bills get paid. <laughs> you you have to have fucking walls. You absolutely have to have border control. Okay, okay, but 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 that is not all libertarians agree with that. Well, because maybe they haven't thought about it. But like in in the con- well, no, I just think I do, I've I've heard it. Like I've listened to Tom Woods and and I've heard two people like really struggle with it and they, and they know what they're doing because <laughs> they know it's bullshit. Yeah, but they also know by creating. Uh, borders they are essentially limiting a certain aspect of freedom that comes with natural birth rights and that's i think that i think i think that is an element of hypocrisy because we are naturally born into a world which was which was created without rules and we're now creating a rule saying those people born there can't come here and that is, I think that's a hypocritical position. Well, well th- th- again, this only becomes a problem in the context of a welfare state um, or a wealth distribution. So, no, no, but even if without a welfare state, you, you, in your, in your version, you're saying no welfare state, but you are also saying you absolutely have to have borders. 
Well, no, 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 no. I'm saying you only have to have so. So you have to have borders around your property, right? And now, if your community, yeah. so what about country? Do you think country border in your anarchist world? Do you think there should be borders in in my anarchist world? A country doesn't exist. You can't have a country. Well, yeah, you know what I mean, like a region area. But it, 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 it does because in your version, it it it, it exists within the within inside the borders of other countries just say the first one was just say it was america the border would the canadian border and the mexican border would exist yeah okay so so they're, they're much much smaller first of all um number two they um you know you, you would allow someone to come in and but guess what they, they don't get fucking anything for nothing so they you know of course but you but you're open to that idea absolutely yeah like in that sense like in a libertarian society where there is no welfare state um you know you, you, the requirement for strict borders diminishes because okay. you know someone can come in and they either starve or they work um and if they work what a, that's good for all of us okay what about okay let me add something to this what about defense what about you know america goes anarchist those mean bastards over in canada so seals their success and the army thinks we're going to go and invade there and, and and pillage everything they've done how do you provide defense Defense was traditionally like, and again, when you look at how the Americans first beat the United Kingdom, um, was you you have these. So, let's say you're a bunch of communities and cities, and you say, "All right, you know, we we sort of have this, um, you know, free libertarian private sort of policing. You know, the you know where everyone sort of pays like an insurance agency or something like that to, you know, or they pay a subscription, you know, like you'll have policing at subscription, right? Then, then you'll have, um, you know, each jurisdiction might, may or may not um, choose to have some sort of, um, I don't know, group of people that they, you know, hire for uh, external defense. Now, what happens is each then little city or collective or group or whatever can choose to ally in the same way as, you know, America and France and England and everything allied against the Germans just on a different scale is that you would ally and try and, you know, push back an invader because it's um, game theoretically sound for you guys to ally to maintain your, you know, individual sovereignty because, you know, if you start getting eaten up one by one, then, um, you know, you're next basically. So it's, it's actually been the same throughout all history is that, clans and things like that when you know when they used to go to war against monarchs and stuff like that they would all band together and they would protect themselves like i don't know if you remember um uh braveheart you know in the beginning like the the scots you know protected themselves from the english by banding together and that that's effectively how that would work but you know this idea of having a standing army to go and attack somebody else is i think stupid because then that sort of that that's an aggression now again in the last hundred years because of the um you know the rise of the state and you know the 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 advantages of scale that have emerged from um you know through through industrialization and um you know each man with a gun kind of type warfare there was um there was an advantage to raising a big army and going and you know stepping on someone else's territory but that that's all shifting that's all shifting with the right yeah but yeah but, but, but fine but what what if we didn't build an ally and what if they just did come and attack us where does the defense come from or or let's think uh, let's think about border encroachment from other countries which has happened israel has stolen land from the palestinians sorry if there's any uh, israeli people listening and they disagree with this i'm not a um 
anti-Semite. It just uh, <laughs> it just factually has fucking happened, and everyone who disagrees with it is a fucking liar. Um, so, but that has happened. Uh, the uh, Russia's annexed Crimea and is you know a threat all across their border. China in the uh, is it the South Pacific Seas are battling over specific islands. Uh, um, you know, like countries steal land when they can. Yes. If you're an anarchist society, what stops a bordering country just deciding to expand its own country into yours? Really good fucking defense weapons, man. It's the only solution. Okay, but 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 how do you have those? Because this is a country with an army and the apparatus of an army. And if you're an anarchist, you don't have the apparatus of an army. You might have certain weapons, but like. You don't have the actual structure and inf- like the apparatus of a, of, of a, an army. So how is that defense provided? Um, you can pay for it. But how? Like structurally, how does it happen? Well, you you pay a provider to come together. There'll, there'll be a lot of money now in us protecting our way of life. So you know, if we're a prosperous capitalist anarchist society, th- th- there's a lot there's a lot of other um, elements that go into that. So it's like. You know, we, we've but hold on. If we're a prosperous capitalist society, we also then have the money to invest in companies, create big balance sheets, and create monopolies. No, that's not. That's not <laughs> Sorry, man. No, no, that's not what capitalism is. Capitalism is the efficient use of you know your resources. That's got nothing to do with monopolies. Well, the the yeah, but Google will argue that is a very efficient use of resources because of the size of the company it's built. Yeah, correct. But again, G- Google is someone that's built a solution that is very useful for everyone. That's why everyone keeps using it. But the 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 monopolistic element of Google, where nobody else can compete, is exacerbated by the fact that the state exists, that they print money, and that these public companies, particularly FAMGA, get eighty percent of all the fucking liquid capital that flows into the markets. That's where the unfair advantage is because now as a competitor, I can't compete with that. So that's not what capitalism does. That's not capitalism. That is um, the crony system that we have at the moment is Google gets an unfair advantage over any competitor that might have created something better, smarter, um, or anything like that. So, so, so let's, let's take that. Let's separate that from um, capitalists. So we've got an anarcho-capitalist community. We you know, make much better use of our resources because we allow people to voluntarily trade. They do things better. They do things smarter. We're innovating. We're creating all this cool shit. First of all, you are selling stuff. So you become valuable to these other countries that are less fucking um, intelligent and that have these you know, heavy-handed state fucking things. So they want to buy shit off you in the first place. So they have an incentive to ensure that you, know, you keep doing your thing. Now, some you know, draconian fuckwit might think that, all right, I'll just come and take it from them because they might be dumb enough to believe that um, it's, you know, it's the machines that you built as opposed to this, you know, the, the, the method of organization that you guys have built that allows you to, you know, produce at a higher rate. So they come in and then what you do is you then pay somebody else to come and protect you if you don't have the um, resources yourself to protect you or you band together with other ones that are in your vicinity that might be in a similar situation. So these kind of things that they're very difficult to sort of have a blanket solution for, but you know, when when your um, when your existence comes into question, um, you, you know, you you end up finding a way. And I mean, one could obviously use the Hong Kong example as you know an antithesis. You know, we have um, you know we have China, you know, taking over Hong Kong, and it's a fucking tragedy and all that sort of stuff. And and, and it fundamentally is. Um, so it's not you know it's there's there's no there's no sort of clean answer, which is why I don't think the transition to smaller jurisdictions to smaller cities to a more um 
free-ish society is going to be clean. We're, we're going to have to go through the tyranny of the state trying to transgress upon or transgress against free people. And as the, um, like the tables, you know, or, or the, the tectonic plates, let's say shift, um, where, you know, I mean, in the past, if you wanted to go and beat America, you had to raise a larger army than America. These days, you could fucking love with that. You, if you want to beat America, you you know can I don't know a, a group of ten people who can you know whether it's hack the elections or drop an EMP or something like that you can take down an entire nation state because the larger it gets the more fragile it gets. So so this was actually the thesis of um, the sovereign individual is this idea that the the gain that the state apparatus had over the last couple hundred years of using scale and number of people to gain an edge in the use of violence is diminishing because now you can cause much more damage with a lot, with a lot less people. So what that does is it changes the, um, the incentive dynamics for how, um, you know, how, how violence and defense actually works. So it's how, how attack and defense actually works. So you come back to this notion of, um, you know, the only way to really uh, demarcate private property is, you know, by, you know, what you can defend um, and what we need to be focusing on as individuals and as people who are freedom loving, for example, is how do we lower the cost of defense and increase the potential cost of attack? And, and, and that's kind of the, it's a direction. It's not a, it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. Um, you know, there's going to be lots of, we might create a citadel that gets fucking overrun by China. Um, and then we have to be like, oh, well, fuck, that was a waste of time. Now we have to go somewhere else and do it again. So it's like it's not, it's not going to be clean, but it's the direction we need to strive for. And it's, there's no point in us um, replaying the same democratic fucking farce because we're just going to end up where we are right now, which is, you know, <laughs> you know having a couple people uh, decide what's right for everybody. I mean, if, if there was... No, listen, look, 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 I get what you're saying, but I do, I, I think we have to recognise, like, some of the flaws. Well, um, I think the, well, I think, the, I think the, the potential loss of, by the way, Bitcoin's just shot over 15k. Um, I think well, the potential encroachment of land from non-anarchist countries from the other side of the borders is a significant risk. And without a coordinated central defence um, of equal... Then you are at risk of losing uh, territory. We've seen, we've just, wow, look, it's going up like a rocket. We've seen that with other countries. You know, Palestinians, they have rocks and, and rocks and a few mortars, and, uh, you know, yeah, and they, they have not been able to defend beat. themselves. No, nah, the guerrillas always beat the big army, man. The guerrillas. No, it's, just, it's, just, it's just simply not true. It's just factually not true what's happened in Israel and Palestine. You only have to go and look at, I think it's the 1970 UN agreed borders. Go and look at the borders and then go and look at the encroachment of the borders. You know, it's, it's happened and they've been abused and had their land taken and they don't really have a way to defend themselves. Now, listen, look, you can argue, like, you can argue the guerrillas work in a war. You can look what happened in Vietnam. Certainly, you know, the guerrilla, the guerrilla warfare of the Vietnamese soldiers who had literally fucking like they, they, they had rudimentary weapons and they had to like reuse the bombs that didn't explode. Like, I get all that. And, and they, they, you know, the Americans weren't able to defeat them, but the Americans weren't there to take their land. They weren't. They were there to prevent the uh, expansion of communism. Uh, 
you're watching this rocket ship go, by the way. No. But anyway, but but I'm just saying, like a bordering country is a different scenario where they want to just steal your land. They could just steal your land. That is that is. A, I think it would be naive not to admit that's a possibility. Correct. So therefore, so, is, is it? Do you accept it, or how do you defend against it? Well, you you either you know, unfortunately, you know, in the in the face of evil, you either protect defend um and you do it to the death where you retreat and then you go rebuild somewhere else so, so these are one of the unfortunate realities which what i guess you know some people would argue is that oh the way to um you know defeat the the threat of that or to protect from the threat of that is by doing the same thing um and my argument is that i don't think that's um wise i think the the tectonic plates and the the way the use of violence is um is changing and and you know like we will be able to protect in better ways than we will um than we have traditionally with guns where you know a million people defeat you know 10 people is you know like the the advantage that came with numbers is not going to be the same advantage moving forward because we're, we're operating on a different plane um and a different field and there's going to be a situation like um, you know, in the transition, I'm sure there's going to be casualties. In the transition to being, um, you know, a more fragmented, smaller, more locally focused um, world, there's going to be, you know, some larger states that try and take advantage of non-well-defended, you know, call them citadels or private cities and stuff like that. Um, and there will be some tragedies along the way. But I think the days of the large-scale state are numbered because they don't have the same advantage that they used to have, number one. Number two, they're numbered. Oh, I'm going to call you out on this one. Sorry. The large the, the large state I don't think is over. I, I, I agree with the, like, the threat and what they present, but just saying that you can get rid of them, I think mm, – I think the I think there's a lot of people living in a lot of countries that would I think people in North Korea would love to uh, overthrow the state. They, they haven't managed to for what is it? How long's the Kim Dynasty? Is it like sixty years? I mean, I don't actually know. Maybe a hundred years. Um, but 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 the overthrow of the Russian state that's not happened. That's a blip on. Um, I mean, no 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 no. But like, the, what about the overthrow of the Russian state? That's not going to happen. So when states get overthrown, they get replaced by another state. Uh, and, and and I'm not saying you're not right in your desires and goals, but I think you're underestimating underestimating how difficult it is going to be to overthrow a state and replace it with an anarchist society. I think you can overthrow a state and replace it with another state, but the the, the days of the states being numbered. I just don't see it. It's not that I don't want it, not that I don't agree with you. I just, I think it's a naive position to take. I apologize. That sounds a little bit aggressive, no, but it's fine. you know what I mean? No, no, no. Look, I, I, I stand by the fact that I think it's numbered in the sense that um, my timescale might just be a little bit longer than yours. You know, I'm thinking in terms of decades um, because I think it's going to continue to disintegrate. Um, it's, it's not getting stronger at this point. I think what's happening is that particularly after this whole 2020 mess that we've had is you've got less productive people now you have less of a real economy you have less of their ability like that they have they have a smaller um productivity base to tax so so they're, they're getting more bloated they're getting larger but like the parasite has less to feed off so so what like it is it is collapsing under its own weight and the, and the problem is because it's no longer agile because it cannot innovate because it's no longer um protecting private property because it's 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 also like it, it it can't move with reality 
um, it's going to fracture under its own weight. And this is the thing, like the, the only, when things become too centralized, they end up breaking anyway, that this is, this is a natural law. It, they can't get, you can't get around it. Um, it it's going to break. Um, you know, when you use up the capital base, like you, you, you fall apart, you have nothing left to eat. Now, the only question is, is that going to happen violently under the collapse of the system itself? Or will we be able to um, kind of move it back consciously in the direction of fragmentation and more localism? That's the only question that we've got here. Oh, I, it's gonna I, hope it, I hope it happens. I just... I don't I don't underestimate how complex of a challenge it really is going to be. It's it's of course it's going to be complex, but t- tell me as the state if the state continues to get bigger and there's less and less and wealth less and less wealth being produced, where does the wealth come from? How do we feed people? What do we do? Well, this is where, where revolutions start. It's like that fourth turning thing. Like I mentioned earlier, I've got to go and read uh, yeah. preparation. I'm going to do an interview with Brendan Quitten. Yep. Um but um, about that, so I need to go and read and understand that. But usually, what you with your boom and bust cycles, you eventually get to the point where um, there's such a um, wealth disparity that you you see revolutions. I saw it when I was in uh, Santiago and Chile earlier in the year. You know, people protesting on the street. We've seen it in France. You know, people. We're, we're living the most prosperous times prosperous times ever, but everyone's fucked off. You know, everyone's pissed off uh, for a variety of reasons. But there is so much wealth disparity. I mean, it happened in the US, the UK. Um, we're at that point where we re- require a reset. Yes, the the Bitcoin reset is interesting. I don't think the people who want it have fully thought it through yet in, in certain examples. But 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 I don't. I think most of these will be replaced with another form of state. Yeah, but what do you think that state is going to be larger, or do you think it's going to be smaller? No, I think it starts smaller, and the same happens again. And why do you think the same happens again? What what what? I just think it's. I think it's. The, I, th- I think it's the natural. It's the natural cycle of the state and how the state operates. Why? Why? Um, I just think it. I just think this is the the way we are. Firstly, we, we you know we organize ourselves into structures. We have leaders and followers, and I think what happens is structures just get bigger and bigger as you know the state ends up creating more and more rules, and and then it ends up having to tax us more to create to 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 manage its what it's created, and then eventually it has to print more money to cover the fact that the tax receipts don't cover its debts, and eventually you have a reset. I just think it's this like perpetual cycle until something new happens, and I'm not. Saying it won't happen i just i don't know what it is or when it will happen okay so let's touch on a couple of things there so it gets bigger because it can do what well, a couple of things like um it promises to provide you know protection again right better um so it then finds a way to give itself a monopoly on violence um and then you also mentioned the, the printing of money they're the two facets that allow a state to grow larger is maintaining a monopoly of violence and being able to print money. Now, what I think is different this time, and this is why I think we're sort of transitioning into something new, is that the most important form of wealth is Bitcoin. Everyone's going to want some, even these new states, and they ain't going to be able to fucking print it. And that is going to be the ultimate thing that stands in the way of their ability to grow large. Because you cannot grow large without printing money out of thin air to fund yep. the um, the ability to have a monopoly on violence. 
So what we're really talking about here is can we create a Bitcoin-based system that the state doesn't destroy? Well, um, it, or can this can the state use violence to make us use their currency as well as Bitcoin? They will try. So, so my my contention is more so that um, we're doing that anyway because we're sucking the economic um, mass out of the existing system. Um, so what what will happen is you know the existing system is just going to get more and more brittle over time. More and more of the producers are going to store and transact their wealth on Bitcoin. So it'll be immune from tax. It'll be immune from, you know, the, the confiscation by the state. So what will happen is the state will have less and less to feed on. At some point, it'll either go through revolution or through natural collapse or something like it's going to get really fucking messy. And anything that emerges afterwards, um, you know, all the while Bitcoin's getting stronger. This is, this is actually where the whole idea of Bitcoin fixes this actually comes from, is that because that because you can't, um, print money, you can't give yourself as a state the ability to pay for something like um, large-scale armies um, or a monopoly on violence. So when, so first you remove the um, monopoly on money creation, then that actually limits the ability to create a monopoly on violence, and then that actually then makes room for people to create more competitive um, societies that are smaller um, and more fragmented. So, so this is why Bitcoin is such an important thing. So the question is less about um, uh, when it happens, because we don't know, but it, it's more about how. Like, is it going to be a messy, you know, falling apart of the state? Like, is it going to be people finally fucking having enough of, um, you know, governments and large corporates that, you know, that have turned into monopolies thanks to, you know, their government pals um, having all the money whilst all the middle class and poor have nothing? Um, you know, is that going to be the breaking point or is it going to be just that these fucking states in the next decade literally run out of money because they have to tax people 60, 70, 80% because they just shut down every single economy and there's no more money left and there's no more people working. Like, I, I, like we can only, I, I kind of say it like this is, it's kind of, we are the fool right now who's ran, run off a cliff thinking that we can fly and we've jumped and for the first five seconds we're beating gravity because we feel like we're moving up. Um, but on a long enough time scale, we're fucking crashing. So we, we, we've deviated so far from natural law, from things like um, what we discussed earlier, things that we agreed were immoral, from you know power and control over another, from stealing or taking by force someone else's shit, from unprovoked violence. Like this is all of the state stuff is built on these uh, principles and it can only last for so long until people fundamentally um, have enough or until the capital that has been built up over hundreds of years or centuries or millennia of work is depleted and you know we're, we're sort of depleting all of that shit now and um yeah it, it's 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 gonna happen and i mean the talk that i gave in vienna um at the beginning of this year actually i think it was a couple of weeks before you and i did our first podcast was that a libertarian society and austrian economics cannot exist without bitcoin until then, it's just theory because we will, I agree with you, keep going through the same cycle of concentration and centralization of power until you cannot concentrate the, the, um, the tool through which we measure human resources, which is money. So un until that is standardized, where nobody can have an advantage, we'll go through the same process of um, centralization and largesse and 
fatness of the institution that runs the joint until it collapses and we emerge with a new smaller fragmented thing and then we go through the same fucking um cycle again so so bitcoin fundamentally okay. breaks that okay yeah no i don't disagree i don't i don't disagree with that i don't disagree with that i mean it's it i would love someone to do a proper investigation like a proper write-up of a paper of the pros like an honest pros and cons because this bitcoin fixes it is a useful meme but i don't think it's entirely correct in every instance right um yeah th there's lots of things to consider about what bitcoin can and can't do um and also the you know the transition to a bitcoin based society itself we'd have to accept that there are some like negative uh consequences it's likely a bloody transition it's, it's you know, yeah you we're talking about a reset of the economy and the financial system it could push a lot of people into desperate kind of poverty as we kind of reset the production uh the, like the, the 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 means of production um I would love someone to do a pro I don't know if someone's done an actual real research paper into into how it happens and what it means and um, but I think it just as a starting point, ha having Bitcoin as a reserve currency, I think would, would be super helpful. But, but it's um, so much more like this is where I say it's so much more than just a reserve currency. It's actually a limit on the ability for um, a, a state actor to have a monopoly on money because that, that's where it all starts. Um, so so if, if we create a limit there, you actually you you and this, this is what the Constitution was originally trying to do was it was trying to actually be a limit on the ability for one group to have um, uh, disproportionate power over everybody else, right? Now, the constitution failed because it, you know, was, uh, well, it's failed thus far because, you know, it was really, uh, its integrity was based on the interpretation of human beings, whereas Bitcoin kind of transcended that. And that's why I think it's so powerful is that, you know, it is a constitution in and of itself that, um, that no matter how, you know, different you think you interpret it pete and that i interpret it i mean it's still 10 minute blocks it's still 21 million you know it's still like it's it's the same fucking rules for all of us no matter what you subjectively believe or what i subjectively believe and that's so 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 so, so powerful um and 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 that is the crucial piece of the puzzle that is that has been missing which is why the original libertarian ideal ended up failing under the corruption of the creation of the state. So I actually think, you know, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, because we are heading there. Like one of the other advantages that we have now with Bitcoin, which I think is really interesting, is that uh, because Bitcoin sort of embodies uh, private property, um, you know, and, it, you know, it, it is almost like, you know, private property by definition is what you can defend, remember? Like if you can defend what's in your brain, um, you know, you, you are the official owner of that piece of property. And then that's sort of like why, you know, Bitcoin's so superior as a, um, as a form of wealth preservation. But um, what, what's, uh, what's interesting is that over the next decade or two, contrary to how previous revolutions have emerged, is that the people who, um, who basically helped, you know, drive the revolutions for, for the positive um, result or like let's actually use the American Revolution as an example again is those who left England and went to start a new land, they actually had to drop everything and start from scratch. The difference that we're going to have this time, and this is really powerful, I think, is you're going to have a bunch of freedom-oriented individuals who are going to be quite fucking wealthy 
um, holding a bunch of Bitcoin who will have the resources to make some moves that would have um, in days gone by been very, very hard to do unless you really like find a fresh land, like, you know, what America was. So that that's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Now that does it again, it's not a panacea. doesn't mean it's going to fucking solve everything. It doesn't mean it's going to be perfect or smooth or any of that sort of stuff. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly, but we'll actually have a resource that everybody else wants. Um, and we'll be able to pay for stuff, um, to, to restart or kick off that, um, that path to productivity again. So I think, um, that that that's the wild card that I don't think we've had in the past, and yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. Well, I love the fact that Bitcoin has shot through fifteen k while we've done this. And, and I mean, we've we've done it nearly three hours, and um, in the time when we when did we start? We started about is it one? So Bitcoin has gone up around four hundred dollars in the time we've done it. <laughs> amazing well listen look, let, 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 let me let me let me give you my kind of like concluding thoughts because we could go on for hours but um i think this is a good thing that we can follow up on my concluding thoughts are like i agree with the vast majority of what you say i, I tend to try and th- i tend to then try and work through the consequences of them what the negative ones are what the positive ones are such but and and i i what i think is is that like you're mainly right okay like 95 percent but i don't i don't think you probably and i think you were you were actually working it through in your head when i said through the dupont thing i think you were trying to figure it out i think if i'd if i'd given you that in 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 advance you would probably have a different response i don't know if you agree or disagree with that yeah i I don't think that one was fully answered i i also i don't understand how the rule of law is maintained um and i know there's certain basic rules but then you know who sets those? This could be more complicated ones. How the? I mean, we could have covered how prisons work, who finances them, blah blah blah, because that that needs thinking about. Um, and I also don't think defense was answered. And in some ways, it takes me towards this idea that, like, uh, despite us not being friends at the moment, Francis Poulier introduced me to the idea of like the night watchman state, the like minarchism. And I know there's like that libertarian joke, like, do um, minarchists are like six months away from being an anarchist or whatever? Yeah. But like, yeah. I like the idea of minarchism because it, at least it, it it covers those basic things like for example like I, I i don't think the roads thing is ever really properly well answered uh, i think you could have basic regulations around certain things i think i think minarchism with a strong constitution of what it can and can't cover therefore it doesn't have like scope creep is an interesting area for me um and i certainly think that defense in terms of borders i don't think you answer that one fairly well I, I, I still think that's a risk but that's that's kind of my conclusion but like everything else like uh, like theoretically I, I agree with you look I, I actually started off with minichism as well when I sort of started falling down the rabbit hole and minichism was was what made sense in fact it was Ayn Rand's book that where she says that the government should exist to to, to perform three functions and three functions only is defense um, internal protection through policing and uh, uh, judiciary services. And that's it. Yeah. Nothing fucking else. And and for me, that's where I also started. But then I guess where I've sort of uh, moved on, and this, this is that whole the, the six months meme, is that um is that I realised that okay, instead of giving um that right to to one group, um let's open it up to competition because different ones will do it better. And basically, different um, providers of those services will enforce 
um, protection, rule of law, and um, you know external defense better if they can compete against each other. And what it does is creates a market for the best um, provider of those services. So, so that's that's for me a hard um, argument to 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 push against. You know, if a minarchist says that uh-huh. yeah, it should be just one person doing it, and my thing is, yeah, well, look, that's fine, but why don't we just open it up and let the best provider of that win? And that's kind of where um, where you kind of then, you know, fall into. But, I mean, either way, minarchism or anarchism are both much, much, much better than, um, than large-scale democracy or large-scale state control with, without, sorry, without the um, option to secede. And, and that's, I think, if, if I had to boil down the biggest problem with democracy today or the biggest problem with the state today is that you're not allowed to leave, man. You're not allowed to fucking leave. Like you don't have well, an option. Yeah, like well, that's what I was saying. Is there like that option to opt out? Someone recommended a book for me, and I got the audio book. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It'd be funny actually. It'd be funny if it was you who recommended it because we had that chat before. Let me just dig it out for you. Yeah, go for it. Audible, because I was like, I wonder what what about the idea of an option in an option out state? And I think if you had that, you might actually, you know. So for example, if you opt out, you you don't get health, you don't get police, you don't get fire. Yeah, yeah. but you have the ability to choose to take out insurances and yeah, such. Hundred percent. And I, I, I can imagine that leading to like uh, the end of a lot of what the state provides. Someone recommended this book and to like to like the lightning. To no, that wasn't me. No, but uh, when I got the audio, apparently that that's a similar thing. I got the audio book, but I was just bored. Well, for, you're like, you're, so you're bored. defining the libertarian thing right there. That's what it is. So so libertarians aren't necessarily against you know. Um, you know, uh, organization by people like, you know, organizing whatever way you want that that's your, that's your choice and your right to do so. Yeah. Um, but allow for an opt out, like allow for then, you know, if you, if you don't like it, go set up your own com- competitive, um, yeah. version of it. If you think you can do better. Well, that's what the U S system's meant to be in, t- in some ways, isn't it? Well, it was meant to be like, but yeah, the fucking rolling in their grave right now, looking at the clusterfuck that, um, that it's become, you know? So like, I mean, if there was ever an argument for smaller state, I mean, you look at America today, like completely fucking divided. There is no reason why one person should, you know, be in charge of everyone when you have like people that completely think differently. Like it's fucking madness. No, I, I agree. Well, this is like we t- <laughs> people don't know, but we delayed this because um, we were meant to record a couple of days ago. Firstly, I stayed up all night watching the US election, so I didn't get any sleep. But but then I wanted to see the result. But I couldn't help but thinking there's like two politically, two essentially two political groups within the US. And let's just say for the sake of the argument, it's kind of like the country split down the middle, half mm-hmm. Democrat, half Republican. And they're all fighting to have one person choose who who gets to kind of like... Not on their own, because obviously you have like you have um, you know the the Senate and the Congress and such, but 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 you essentially have like this one leading person who, who you look to as your kind of like leader. Yet he he only his views only really represent fifty percent of the people, and and even then you know it's a choice between Donald Trump, who is a fucking moron, and uh, Joe Biden, who's got a really terrible track record as a as a politician, and it's just kind of bollocks, really. Um, so I mean, I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah, I mean, this is why. Like, I think I'll, I'll I want to finish on one last um, description of democracy, which I like that I've got written here. Do it. And do it, man. I say, um, you know, 
like democracy is another form of just like the removal of personal agency um you know where the, the difference with democracy is that you like you feel like you have a say but you're still mired like in the commons so your opinion your desires and your wants are secondary to what the supposed collective has so you know the example i try and use with people sometimes is like food and diet um let, let's compare food and diet like in a commercial system or an economic system versus uh-huh. food and diet in a politically democratic one where in the politically democratic one so so like we're, we're replacing decision making with what uh, you're allowed to eat so your money in the democratic version is it's pooled and what you eat is what the collective agrees on so you know you pull your money together instead of individual decision making you decide as a group um and it's majority rules so you and a couple of others might want broccoli but you know the majority want meat so it's decided that meat is the way now you believe it's wrong because you don't want to eat meat you think broccoli is better so your only recourse because you know remember all the money's pooled and it's split up and you all have to eat meat um is to decide to lobby um so you now have to waste time energy you know and build an unnecessary set of political skills to convince everyone that broccoli is better so after you know a couple of years of lobbying you finally get to do a new vote and now you you know have a 60-40 win that broccoli is what we should all eat not meat um and then you know we go back into the vicious cycle because then your opponents are pissed off who wanted to eat meat now being forced to eat broccoli have to go and do the same thing so you have all this fucking waste whereas in a free market which is what sort of like libertarians you know promote is that fuck what everyone else wants you just choose for yourself um and the direct mechanism for voting is um an economic decision which is where do i put my the product of my labor which is my money and i decide to you know use what i want in my way instead of someone else um or some collective deciding via some ridiculous indirect intermediary um method so it's like you know we we've democracy just introduces all of this waste in the middle of direct decision making and this is where you were talking about minicist system is you know if you want defense if you want healthcare fucking pay for it just you know just buy insurance and and this is like human beings are solution oriented creatures so if there's a problem of defense if there's a problem of private property protection if there's a problem of sickness if there's a problem of bad actors we will find solutions to these and the best way to find solution is to let everybody have a go at trying to solve the problem and that is the definition of a free market and that is so much better than creating um institutions that can uh, accumulate power through regulation that nobody else that then that sort of block off anybody else from coming and competing so so that i think is really where that element settles and i think whilst we might not have all the answers for what a utopian libertarian society um looks like because a it doesn't exist but b is the messiness you know and a, bunch, a couple of things that you brought up which i might not have a direct answer to i might not but in an open market some other person of the 7 billion will come up with an answer to that problem and the uh-huh. opportunity for them will be to make money and and that's again where the free market comes in so i think again it's far superior than a couple academic intelligentsia fucking numpties who believe that they know better and that if only they had all the resources they would know exactly how we should all live it's so arrogant All right man well listen look I think there's a lot to think about here we should do this again I think next time uh, I'm going to try and get Alex Gladstein on cuz he'll have some arguments that I won't think through with with regards to democracy so I'll try and do that also we've got to stop cuz we both started swearing ah yeah I don't know if you noticed Touché. we both started swearing we made that promise <laughs> 
we failed. We failed. Look, look, the, the, this was a, a long in the planning. It's been an awesome show. We've done three hours. Uh, I think it's provocative. It's going to make people think. And I appreciate you giving me uh, uh, three hours of your time to do this, Alex. And uh, it's been good getting to know you, man. I, like, I appreciate it. You definitely make me think and uh, check myself sometimes. So thank you, brother. Likewise, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me on and, you know, sort of allowing these sorts of conversations. I know, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I sort of obviously side with a lot of the, um, with the plebs and the hardcore guys and stuff like that. But I think, you know, I, I hope that like I, I side with them because I like I'm I'm morally on that side and you know I, I I'm part of that intolerant minority. But I think, you know, those guys have sort of come to that realization through much of the same path that I've sort of come. And, you know, mm. I stand with that and I, you know, I hope that these sorts of discussions kind of bring people who are on that journey kind of along the path to there. So yeah, I appreciate you um, being open well, to this, man. Well, these conversations are useful. Like, I, I mean, I could very easily just agree, but I think it's I think it's useful to have these conversations to actually ch- like challenge the ideas and the thinking and to like take contrarian opinions, which opinions which I like to do. Like, it's so funny, right? All the guys on Twitter that think I'm like left because I don't like Trump, that or because I have some kind of like progressive ideas, and all my friends think I'm uh, I'm like on the right. Uh, I just I like taking contrary opinions because I think it's useful. Um, but anyway, listen, look, we could go on forever. I appreciate your time, man. Uh, I wish you all the best. Hopefully, when I say this to everyone, when the planes are flying, we'll actually get to catch up in person sometime. And uh, we didn't, you know, what we didn't even we didn't even talk about coronavirus. We didn't. Funniest we didn't even talk about Trump and Biden. Holy shit! <laughs> we didn't talk about Trump and Biden. We didn't talk about coronavirus. I mean, we could have we could have done a four hour monster here, but um i'm i'm wiped out i'm sure you are but we should definitely follow up this has been easily one of my favorite chats ever on the show so i appreciate your time man appreciate it for sure man and i'll throw one last thing in there if anyone um sure. hasn't read some of my stuff I, I wrote one recent article called bitcoin and lockdowns which i think is really important but i think probably one of my more favorite ones i just uh published it today is called um resistance is not futile it's necessary and it's kind of like a call to arms for everyone to sort of I think the biggest danger we have in the world today is that we're just, we've fallen to just this apathetic acceptance of, you know, being told what to think, how to think, what to do. And it's getting worse and worse. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like a, a call to people to think a little bit deeper. So ch- check it out. It's on my medium, svetsky.medium.com. But it's, you know, I talk about some of the stuff that me and Pete discussed here and particularly like, the difference between natural law and um, and man-made law, and and kind of like u- using some of those basic primitives to decide that hey, you know, it, it's really important. This is why you know I, I love the name of you know defiance for you is like that ability to defy stems from the ability to think for yourself, which stems from some of these a priori truths like I am a man with free will and I own myself and I own my ability to think. And therefore, I can defy something that is, um, you know, a transgression on, you know, my personal private property, which is my ability to think. So, so it's such an important thing, and and I think a lot of society has lost that courage to to defy and to disobey. And um, yeah, anyway, I I urge anyone to go and read some of that. But yeah, thanks again, Pete, for having me on. No way, no worries, man. Listen, look, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, I'll make sure people share it because I read it in preparation to this. It's a very, very good article. Did did make me think. So I'll put it in the show notes. And yeah, I wish you all the best, brother, and hope to see you soon. For sure. Take care, man. Ciao. Okay, how good was that? Did you enjoy that? It's a bit of a monster, right? As I said, 
if I'm enjoying a subject, they tend to be the longer shows because you just end up waffling on for ages. Now, even though this was one of my longest shows ever, it, I could think it could have gone for at least another couple of hours. It was a bunch we didn't get to go through, but I think about three hours is about the limit that's worth going into. Although I think Matt O'Dell at the end of the year is going to want to do a record show with me. I think we're going to try and hit a four-hour monster. But I'll definitely get Alex back on in the future to discuss these items again. I think the arguments he puts forward are very strong, and I, I fundamentally agree with a lot of what he says. However, I do think they're part of libertarianism or anarchism that feel a little bit... Like, they're theoretically great. I just don't see how it works realistically. And I don't think enough effort is put into looking at the negative externalities of such a thing. Um, still, it's a topic I find interesting. It might happen anyway. You know, with Bitcoin growth and the state fucking up so much, we might just end up being uh, being something that we naturally uh, evolve to. I have no idea, but we'll see. Anyway, now, if you've got any questions about this, you want to reach out to me, you can get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, head over to iTunes, give me a review on there. Um, if you if you don't have iTunes, yeah, Stitcher will do, but anywhere you can leave me a review is very helpful. Outside of that, have a great week, and make sure you go and check out my other show, Defiance, Episode 2 of Chaos is out on Thursday. Love you all. See you all soon. 